Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yagamalar. And I'm Thumbs. And we are here to talk to you today about Frederick the Great and a concept that we refer to as the danger zone. Copyright pending. But first, <laughs> we got a few things to talk about in the intro section. For instance, I just got... Now, this is, of course, coming out two weeks after I've recorded this, so this is going to be old news for all you Warhammer players. But the book Engine War just dropped, and I could not be more excited, because in this book is contained the Adeptus Mechanicus, uh, the Chaos Knights, some Demons, and Imperial Knights, all four which of armies I play. So, whereas the other Psychic Awakening books I've had, I've got, and like, you know, half of it was useful to me, and half of it just wasn't, because I don't play those units, I don't play that army. Just could, every bit of this. Every bit of this book is useful, and every bit of it is pretty much solid gold, too. Now, I mean, like, the, the Imperial Knights and the Chaos Knights basically kind of get the same stratagems, they're just called by different names. Um, I mean, Wait, I don't actually know Chaos Knights, is that just, like, Imp Knights, but specifically towards Chaos? Yeah, oh, yeah, okay. just, just big, big stompy dudes who really dig the Ruinous Powers. Uh, that's Chaos Knights for you. And, and so they're very similar in the book. Um, but, but everything that I've seen in there is really good. And I'm looking forward to trying some of it out. Now, I don't play Slanesh demons. I play Zneech demons. So the, the specific new models don't necessarily apply to me. But I am looking forward to trying out some of these, some of these tricks. Creating my own forge world. Looking forward to that, no doubt. With Chaos, is, is it always, like, the army always worships the same Chaos God? Or is it... Like this unit might worship corn and this one might worship slanesh and that's a good question. Uh, it actually depends on the army. All of chaos can can play together. So you, it's kind of like the Imperium. So I could have like a, a section of chaos, like Nurgle demons, uh-huh. and a section of corn demons. Now the corn demons get their specific corn uh, perks, and the Nurgle dudes get their specific Nurgle perks. They don't necessarily share perks, mm-hmm. but they can be in the same army. Now certain groups like uh, the Word Bearers who worship Chaos Undivided, can have all three of them within their army, or all four of them within their army. And so, like, the word bearers, whereas normally berserkers, for instance, are a troop choice for the uh, world eaters, or corn-based space marines, uh, they are an elite choice for the word bearers. But they get access to all of them. They get they get the berserkers, they get plague marines, um, they, so they, noise marines, so they, they can use, they can use all of them within the same group. And so I guess my answer to your question is yes and no. Oh, okay. Oh, I actually had a, a 40k story that I hadn't told you yet that I was meaning Ooh. to that came up. Uh, it's much smaller than anything you've got, but because uh, <laughs> I don't play 40k. But a friend of mine at work has started playing and he's like, oh man, and I picked up those because he's like just buying his first army. And he's like, I picked up those. Oh God, they're chaos Marines and they've got, you know, the, the Egypt stuff. And I was like, oh, the, and now I'm blinking the thousand. No, no, you got it. I was like, oh, thousand sons. Pause like, how did I know that? We probably yammer about it enough. (laughs) I don't even play 40k and the little I know is not the chaos, but apparently some of it stuck. I mean, if you're going to pick one to remember, they're pretty iconic. I mean, those 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 rubric marine helms are really cool looking, and the whole scarab occult thing. And they got the whole nemesis going. Yeah, on, but yeah, yeah. They're they're. they're I mean, uh, I don't. I play Zneech demons, and I highly considered picking up uh, Thousand Suns to kind of go with my Zneech demons because they partner really well, both being from Zneech. Mm-hmm. But uh, I just I love the Death Guard so much. They're just oh. 
they're so gross. <laughs> it just can absorb so much fire. Like, like when it, it, there's nothing more satisfying to me than looking across the table at an opponent who has scored several hits and done zero damage. Well, in real life, you're such a glass cannon. No offense. No, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, so playing the exact opposite of that has to have an appeal that I can understand. Oh, dude! Like if Nurgle came up to me and was like, "You will never feel pain again," You're I will like, give you sign this me up. Massive bulk that can absorb anything. All you got to do is just be pussy. Oh. All right, <laughs> I'll be the Baron Harkonnen for that. That's fine. <laughs> I will be gooey. I will be gooey for Nurgle. Oh. Oh. So, uh, Endrimor, if you guys Sorry. play. <laughs> Any four of those armies, definitely worth checking out. I, even with, with the whole ninth edition coming out pretty soon, I, I think the ninth edition is dropping next month. By the time you guys are hearing this, you're probably going to be at least seeing most of the ninth edition rules. But remember that all the Psychic Awakening stuff still applies in ninth edition, at least from everything I've been reading, it still applies. It's not a whole new edition. It's basically just a revamp of uh, of eighth edition. So That's probably the smart way to go when you don't, when you're like, well, I'm releasing the new edition next month. The stuff coming out this month should really not be replaced immediately. Like, and there's, that's just, and there's that's still psychic awakening yeah. stuff that has to come out. That's the other thing. Like this whole this whole uh, um, progression of the storyline that they're doing with the psychic awakening. There's still several armies whose books haven't even dropped yet. So yeah, if they were if they were dropping ninth edition without uh, without having to tie into eighth edition, it would be kind of weird. So this is kind of like. Three five for D and D. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, I mean, I'll know more when I see the actual that's, rule. That's book. fair. Like that's, I, I, I'm I asking you stuff that I only kind of understand in the first place, and then that Let you me haven't get my seen. Tarot cards out, and I will tell you all about what is coming in the future. Like it sounds like you're joking, but I know you own like four tarot decks, and they are of mixed results. <laughs> So, uh, in, in terms of games, though, I actually had a game with one of my apprentices um, a week or two ago at this point uh, by the name of Kaji. He's actually been on the show. Um, and he brought his Tyranids. It was kind of a mixture of some bigger, like, Tyranid warriors, some Termagants, and some Gene Stealers. And I was using my Adeptus Mechanicus kill team. Now, this, this list was one that I put together at the end of, a, a, like, a kill team progression our club had done, and I hadn't actually gotten a chance to use it yet. It was actually a revision I had done on a previous list, and, and, and then the plague hit, and so I hadn't actually gotten to use this <laughs> list yet. So I was sitting there looking at it being like, I wonder if it's actually going to work. And it worked. I don't know if it was just my tactic that worked really well for the mission or not, but the, the mission, it's in the 2019 kill team annual but it's the Infestation Special Tyranid mission. Now this one, what, what, the way it starts is the Tyranid player places their army first, but none of their models start on the board. They just post a bunch of little tokens, little blips is what they're called. Hmm. And they place three more than they have models in their army. So you know where they might be, but you don't know what's there. Correct. Correct. Oh, I kind of like that. They also get a stratagem, because normally what happens is if when you, when you bring out a Tyranid creature to one of the blips, you have to take the blip away. But they have a stratagem that basically makes that blip a permanent wormhole that you can pour infinite Tyranids out of at that point. Okay. So it's terrifying. My eyes went really wide there. You can't see that. but like... <laughs> Thumbs was shocked. Ooh. Capital S-H. So, so what happened was he placed them, of course, all over the center of the, the board. And I, the attacker only gets a three-inch like border around the outside to set up in. That's it. Like you can set up anywhere on that three inch outside border, but you have to be on the outside. And I'm playing Adeptus Mechanicus and I had two dudes in my army. 
a Sicarian Rust Stalker and a Sicarian Infiltrator who were decent at melee. And I, I guess my Electro Priests were decent at melee too. Uh, ish, ish. But I, That's I, I, unusual for Mechanicus, right? Oh, like they're not a... Wait until this new... Like there's a bunch of new stuff in Engine War that's going to make us... We're getting transports. We're, we've, we're getting uh, flyers. We're getting fast attack. A lot of fast attack stuff. Some good melee stuff. Like the new, the new Admech stuff is going to have me in debt. <laughs> for a while oh, really it'll oh, be the yes. new admech stuff not the other eight armies if i paid all that off them <laughs> i'm not in debt for those but but yeah so it's it's just some 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 good revamping and so basically what kaji did is he, he popped up of course this little this little tunnel this nasty tunnel right next to where i was and the way it works is he rolled for each of his dudes in each round and uh if he rolled for them for him to come onto the field he put him onto one of the blip zones right and that was during his movement phase. And then we kind of went from there. I set up all my forces in one, basically three by three corner, mm-hmm. like just tight in together. The two, the two melee-ish dudes on the outside and then everybody else just crammed together and was like, come at me. And it worked. I think I ended up losing like two or three models and yeah, yeah. It, it, like I, I ended up doing pretty well. And, and, and so part of this, of course, was the fact that I played to the Admech's advantage. We have a really good mid and long range game in Admech, especially with like, if you haven't checked out the Corpus Kari tech priests or electro priests, they are a lot of fun. Uh, not uh, much for a way of AP, but just in terms of like number of shots and just co- a cool looking model. I'll have to show you the model at some point, Thumbs, but the Corpus Kari electro priests are just, they're just cool looking. That name sounds like a 90s rave band too. Corpus Cari, Electro <laughs> Get the glow sticks. Yeah. Yeah, we haven't raved in a while. I don't, I don't know how the kids I've do I've never raved. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it went well. I ended up winning. Um, and it wasn't that Kaji necessarily played poorly. It was just um, kind of the way I set up and the way he was forced to come at me. He rolled really well the first round. And actually, the majority of his force came on the first round. And that didn't actually work out well for him because it meant that he had to spread them out considerably more than he wanted to, um, which of course played to my long range game a lot better. Mm-hmm. But what I recommended to him was to have more melee. He had, he had several termagants in the list, like I said, that were just all shooty. And I'm, in a game like Kill Team, where you take so many negatives to shooting, unless you're good at it to begin with. So unless you start with a three up, like Adeptus Mechanicus or Sisters of Battle or Adeptus Astartes or something like that, it's just really not worth it to focus at all on shooting because you're not going to get it. So since he was only okay on shooty and you're doing Adeptus Mechanicus, which is good on shooty, it was just automatically... It was mismatched. Now, he did get some some uh, gene stealers into combat with me and then I managed to roll like a god. That was the other thing. Like even the dudes he did get into combat with me, I have a six up invulnerable save on all my models, which means that on a six, mm-hmm. on a d6... You were fine. And I, I, I just kept rolling it. I just kept rolling the six up. And he was like, how? How are you doing this? And I was like, well, praise the Omnissiah, one. Um, and then two. My weighted dice did a good job for me. <laughs> um, but no, I, again, Kaji, if you're hearing this, it was a great game. I look forward to, <laughs> to playing another one with you. Um, and like I said, I, the only thing I would have done differently with his list is just focus more on the melee. Because that was where the strong point was. If he mm-hmm. had gotten just a few more dudes into combat with me and taken out a few more of my Skitari vanguards, um, and gotten at like my, my juicy dudes. You just would have been in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Just the, the, the dice happened to go my way and the tactic happened to work. So, um, yeah, kill team is awesome. And it's, it's much easier to get together for a game of kill team than it is a game of 40 K right now, no doubt. So another good point moving on a little bit is I was looking at the metrics this last week and we have a new listener in New Zealand. That brings us up to like 
10 countries now. Yeah, I should probably keep a list somewhere. I mean, it's online, which means I, I, I don't have it right here. But <laughs> um, yeah, we, there's, we actually are in um, quite a few countries at this point. So hello, international listeners, and, and uh, thank you for listening to The Art of Wargaming. Someone um, moved to Antarctica. We need to get all seven continents. Oh, dude, that would be cool. <laughs> that would be cool. I mean, I, I don't know if there's much else to do in Antarctica. We probably market to people in Antarctica pretty easily. There's only like four people there at any given time. Do so. they get internet in Antarctica? <sighs> I almost guarantee they don't. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Maybe scratch the Antarctica idea <laughs> until we get that global, like Nikola Tesla six, style. Six out of seven. Yeah. Six. That's not bad. Yeah. That's, not bad. That's a good idea. That's an A. Um, so uh, to our uh, international listeners we are actually going to be asking the question here pretty quick where do we go from here because we know that after frederick of course we're going to do vegetius we already promised you guys vegetius you voted for vegetius and so we're going to go and look at the institutions of the romans but well, after- and i don't know if i've mentioned this yet but i really love ancient history so like i'm so excited i'm just so excited this is going to be a good section and of course this is this is a book that's been referenced by a lot of other historians and a lot of other theorists because of course like you could tell from Machiavelli he wasn't the only one who had kind of a a a love affair with the Romans uh, and especially with their culture and their way of thought and so and this is one of the books that that uh, even Frederick mentions a couple of times in his book so uh, we're going to look at this one and then after we do Vegetius we're going to switch gears a little bit because at that point we're going to have done four books right yeah, four books, four books on conventional warfare. Now, what, what we're defining as conventional warfare is you've got two basically even sides. Like somebody might have a little bit better armament. Somebody might have a little bit better like troop numbers, something like that. But you're basically even. Your, your 2,000 point 40K game, mostly they're going to be conventional warfare. But not all of them, right? Because not everybody marches in, in strict files. Not everybody has that kind of organization. There's some armies that rely on a bit more of a decentralized uh, design. There are some units in Belagarth, like I, I and, and I'm sure there are in the SCA and that sort of thing, where you guys aren't as organized, where it's not as about, not so much, I may be using the wrong word there. It's not about organization, it's about formation. And sometimes size, like Catalyst is not going to outnumber pretty much anyone ever. No offense, Catalyst, you're not big. They're real good though. They have real good fighters. And so what they can do with that small size, uh, is very different than like, well, this side's got 20 people, this side's got 20 people. What do you do when you have four and they have 15? So it gives us a whole new round of stuff to look at. Uh, with every new book, we have new things to talk about, but a much different book gives us a bunch of new things to talk about. So basically what we're driving at is in, in for the next voting section, instead of having uh, a bunch of conventional warfare books, which we've had so far, we're actually going to go into asymmetrical warfare. We're going to be studying what is all commonly referred to as guerrilla warfare, because in this type of insurgency tactic, we can actually find a lot for asymmetrical matchups. So let's say that you happen to be going up against an orc horde, right? And they've got like 200 models on the other side of the table, but you've got a very elite alpha team or alpha legion strike force, Mm -hmm. right? You're going to be using asymmetrical warfare against your opponent. Let's say you've got gene stealer cult. Almost every single time you're using asymmetrical warfare against your opponent. Smaller units on the Belagarth field, SEA field, amp guard field. You're mostly going to be reliant because you don't want to march up and engage your opponent in front to front combat. Not if you're outnumbered like two or three to one, right? I just want to make a Star Wars reference so bad. It's the Bad Batch from the most recent season of Clone oh, Wars. Of like, no just, spoilers. No spoilers. No, not not going into it. it. Just like a, a special elite squad of like six people against just hordes. Right. What and, do they do? 
what do they do? And and what the answer there is asymmetrical warfare. And so we're actually going to be having a, a four books up. Uh, we want you guys to start considering them. You're going to have quite a bit of time because Vegetius is very long. Um, well, I guess not very long, but it's 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 a decent sized book. It's normal long. But the uh, the books we're thinking about looking at are Che Guevara's Guerrilla Warfare, pretty to the point. Uh, Carlos Marighella's Mini Manual of the Urban Guerrilla. We wanted to potentially look at Mao Zedong's On Guerrilla Warfare. And then the fourth selection was Abu Bakr Naji's uh, The Management of Savagery. Now that one, I just want to put an addendum on, that one's only 40 pages long. And so there's, a, there's actually a collection of writings uh, by similar-minded authors that we would be choosing from for additional ones, probably one or two more after the management of savagery. Yeah, that's like, you know, 40 pages is like maybe four episodes if we stretch it out. That is a uh, very short book for us. It is. That's four episodes. That's like four episodes. So so again, th- th- these kind of pull from different areas though, right? Because like Che Guevara, he was from Argentina and he fought, of course, in the Cuban Revolution and then also participated in other Latin American revolutions. So he was fairly knowledgeable on that subject. Um, Mary Gela's book is, I think, over 100 years old at this point, and he was writing out of Brazil. And he was one of the first guys to really start talking about the subject in the same vein. You can't talk about guerrilla warfare without mentioning Mao's work, because this book is one of the most quoted subjects, like by any other guerrilla commander ever. And then when we're talking about insurgency, one of the current uh, issues or one of the current groups using insurgency tactics are the jihadists. And so Abu Bakr Naji, and I've got a, a compendium of jihadist writings on, on their tactics, their asymmetrical tactics, and that would be kind of what we're pulling from there. So it's just something, a little bit of, little bit of uh, brain candy. Mm-hmm. Is that the term? Not really, but it's close enough. We got what you mean. <laughs> uh, I, I will definitely warn that some of these might be a little more upsetting of books than some of what we're talking about, which is like, uh, we tend to be more comfortable with the idea of this army versus this army, as opposed to, well, let's be honest, the jihadist movements gets a little dark in some places there and 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 remember that this show we're we're looking through these texts and through these um these theoretical theoretical works looking for things that are useful to us when we're when we're doing our war gaming so obviously we're we're not focusing on the political aspects of these books that's not necessarily what's important to us on this show what's important to us is um uh, the, the practical application. Absolutely. I just thought it was worth mentioning. For sure. Just, <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess it's worth mentioning. The Art of Wargaming does not condone uh, or, or endorse, blah, 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 like all that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I guess the last thing we got before we get to the real meat and potatoes of the danger zone. No, I keep wanting to sing that, and uh, I don't. I... You can't. You can't. <laughs> we don't have the rights to it, Thubs. Oh, my God. Those are royalties we cannot afford. Oh, my God. Point. So uh, any... Any, yeah, any royalties. Um, Thumbs got lightsaber. I got lightsabers. He ordered. And I them, got married. He ordered I got them two after different me. things. He ordered them after me, and he got them before me. But I, I never ordered CC. So I mean, that was <laughs> you were guaranteed. So like, congr- okay. but congratulations, though, man. Uh, yeah, I got. I, uh, thanks to the special deals going on on Ultra Sabers, we ordered two lightsabers, and then I got two lightsabers free. One which was just a like 
random assembly of different parts, which went to my squire Yui, who lives with me, because I was like, well, it's going to be really mean if two of us in the house have lightsabers and you just have to watch. No lightsaber for you. Uh, theirs kind of looks like Luke Skywalker, but like with a red blade, it looks, I really like it, actually. And then they sent what they call an apprentice saber, but really it's just a one of the cheaper blade, or one of the cheaper handles, and then a short blade, so like Yoda length. Um, in Star Wars, they call them Shoto. Mm-hmm. They are grand total about 30 inches handle and blade, which is the length I like my Belagar swords, honestly, like give or take. So as much as I'm like, look at this really cool fancy one that I spent a bunch of money on, but the one I'm playing with all the time is my other one. Well, if, you <laughs> my look, if you look at the way that most Jedi use their weapons, with the exception of like Count Dooku and other like really, really heavy form two Largely users. Largely two-handed. Mostly a two-handed weapon, yeah. So, I mean, that's that's not... I guess it doesn't surprise me that the the one that you came that's like a proper lightsaber size is like, oh, I'm having trouble wielding this one-handed. Well, yeah. With the real addictive nature of these, I might have to buy shorter, like a double set of lightsabers that are nicer than like the free one they gave me because it was free, whatever. But with the shorter blades, so I can... You know, you could get a shorter blade on it, don't you? I'm sure I could, but... You can just go on there and order blades separately. Like, I made sure to go and look at that because I was like, (laughs) I'm going to break my blade. We're going to be medium sparring with these things. I'm going to break something. Yeah, as I said when I... uh, I I might have told this one when we first mentioned I got it, that we were setting up the orders and CC was like, I don't really care about, like... And I'm just immediately down to, like, the heaviest duties blade. And she looks at me like, what? Come on. Tell me we're not going to hit things with this. And tell me you don't want it to, like, just in case, like, like if you give it to like a, even if you, you're not intending on hitting things with it and you're like, your nephew comes up and is like, Hey, can I see that? And then it's like, yeah. And like hits a tree. You don't want to like just shatter your lightsaber <laughs> and then, then be like, Oh man, there goes my allowance for like three years. Yeah, is, <laughs> I spent way more money than I want to admit to on that. Uh, it's, it, it's a work expense. It, it, it's a work yeah, we're going to use it for videos and stuff and we are and we are that's i mean i know i keep gearing and i guess if if mine don't arrive decently soon i might ask to borrow one of yours to I'm demo sure the video we'll be with. able to manage it um because we want to just you we want to use these lightsabers for the video because it's just going to show up so much better um and, and who knows by now by the time this comes out the video might already be released so i might i might have to eat these words but uh yeah look for it soon again the coming is soon we've talked about it a lot i promise we're not just being like oh yeah no this will happen <laughs> but i think uh thumbs and i have talked about how much we like each other enough at this point uh you want to talk about some some danger zone i think it's time to talk about some some danger zone So we got so excited making Kenny Loggins references that we actually forgot to be like, when do we start the next section? It's yeah. going to be movement with purpose. Movement with purpose. So movement with purpose. Uh, the first thing that Freddie here talks about, I probably should stop calling him Freddie. It's super <laughs> rude. Is uh, the the three sorts of country. Which is, you know. What, what does he specifically list as the three so, sorts of country? Uh, the the three sorts of country that he talks about in the book are our own country, neutral country, and enemy country. Thank you. He has all the notes in front of him, so I'm like, yes, I know what this is. No notes for you. <laughs> um, but we, when we were talking about this, we realized that we could do this in the micro and the macro. With the micro, I'm going to talk about a thing that Sura Roku actually taught me. 
which I believe he said it was originally a kendo thing that he modified. Okay. Uh, that was zone one, zone two, zone three. Right. For distance and stuff. Kempo. I think Kempo. You're, I think you're thinking about Kempo. What are you? I am knocking over my water bottle. Uh. Welcome to the fancy world of podcasting. <laughs> Anyways, zone one, zone two, zone three. Um, I've heard a couple different versions of this over the year. As I said, I'm crediting Soroku. He's the one that taught it to me, and it's actually really useful ways to look at it. Zone one is when they are just right up on you. Mm-hmm. You are, you know, like a step or two away from each other. Grapple range. Grapple range. That's a very good way of putting it. Uh, step or zone two is going to be when you're a little farther apart. Zone two is where we do most of our fighting. It is where both of you can hit each other. Zone three is a little more variable depending on who you're fighting. But what it means is you can't hit them. Not without effort. Yeah. Yeah. Like you have to take a step in or something. You have to, So you'll have to step into zone two to hit them. Yep. Yep, yep. Uh, which means the zones might not be the same for you that it is for me. Like I've, I'm six foot two and I've got a pretty wide wingspan. And you have monkey arms and you use long swords. Mm-hmm. Like I've got a pretty long range and you're still going to be in zone two while I'm taking that step in. So that's an important thing to consider. The uh, like other people's zones are absolutely dependent on on their striking capability. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are realms that really love zone one fighting. Uh, Sir Leaf, anytime I fought him, tends to be in zone two, bordering on zone one. Hobbit oftentimes is just running me down into zone one. Stygia tends to prefer the edge of zone two, almost to zone three. We like our two point five. We we want to be like uh you can, which is why every time a Stygian sword breaks, it's we blow out the tip. Every single time <laughs> is the tip blowing out. You're right. Uh, and yeah, that's really just this concept on the micro, on the one-on-one basis. But obviously when he was writing it, he was thinking much more in the macro army the macro yeah the, the, the big sense and so like thumbs was saying of course our own country is the, the the familiar sort of country it's the country that you're used to maneuvering in probably country that belongs to you in terms of field combat when we're talking 40k or or something that that involves a large team this is your side of the field our own country right and, and so like the rules for maneuvering in this country are going to be a little bit different so like what Th- thumbs was saying it's it's basically um if, if zone three would be like the safe you're, you're, you're quote unquote safe. Like yeah. You don't necessarily want to let your guard down, but you're in a, an area where you can maneuver more freely. That neutral zone, that zone two is, is different. So in the neutral zone, it's here. It says you want to make friends. What am I, what am I saying wrong? Nope. Nothing. I just, every time you say the neutral zone, I'm just going straight to Star Trek. Oh. I'm hitting every nerd reference other than 40 K tonight. As I'm saying it, I'm like, this sounds really familiar on my tongue. Where do I know this from? Neutral. Yeah, that makes sense. So in the neutral zone, <laughs> the area that neither of you are supposed to enter check. And anytime you enter, it might be a war. So actually it applies very well. It does. DMZ also another thing there because in the neutral zone, it's it, things are kind of tense. And so you want to make friends. If you've got multiple uh, groups on the field, multiple units on the field. Now, again, most of the time in 40k, it's a, a one army versus one army. But in, in SEA or Belagarth, we often have large uh, multi-unit combats going mm-hmm. on. And so in something like that, you want to make friends. You want to you want to maybe look at the guy next to you and be like, hey, we won't fight you till the end if you won't fight us till the end. You go left, I go right, and we'll see each other later. And then if we're both alive, we'll deal with it then. And, mm-hmm. and it's, it's, a, it's a nice way of guaranteeing some some uh some breathing space it's one less thing to worry about right now and uh possible advantages later on 
Now, what Frederick talks about is a little bit different. His his emphasis in the book here on the neutral zone is is one of kind of propaganda. He talks about knowing your uh, enemy's um, religion and manipulating your enemy's religion. Because at this time, remember that Europe was very split between Protestant and Catholic forces. And unlike now, where everybody just says Christian, and then that's kind of the end of the conversation. Thanks, 1980s. It was a really big deal, like back then, whether, like, there was a totally different religion, basically, whether you were Protestant or Christian, that's the way it was considered. And so... Um, in this particular place, he was talking about manipulating the religion to your advantage. We're not necessarily recommending you do that, but that's what he says in the text. In this last zone, the enemy zone, that's when you are there. They are on you. You are in the enemy country. You're in the, like your enemy's deployment zone or their side of the field. Uh, and the rules here are, of course, you got to tighten up. You got to make sure that everything is, is good on your end. You got to make sure that everybody's communicating and you know where everything is. And when it comes to the enemy... Again, here you want to understand their beliefs because Frederick wants you to recruit partisans. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a kind of what we we're talking about. And it's a popular thing at any point. We've had multiple battles that we've mentioned over the podcast that uh, part of the reason they won is the locals liked one army less than the other army. Didn't like either one of them, but hated them more. A siege is much easier if some dude on the inside opens the castle gate for you. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's just what you're praying for with a siege. And or any other sort of partisan action. Like if you have anybody causing trouble behind enemy lines, that's attention that your enemy has to divert to dealing with that, that they don't have to do, like to focus on you. Mm-hmm. And so uh, now again, if we're in, I, I rarely have seen somebody go onto a Belagarth field and convince people from the other team to fight their own teammates. That's not something I've often seen. So that part may not, but, but, but when you're in the enemy zone, you got to be prepared for combat. That's, that's basically the point here. Well, and I have seen smaller alliances get broken up. Like, uh, you told a story, I think last episode of the Gelf and the Urukai were working together and then that fell apart real quickly and it just changed the game. True. If you can be like, Hey, God squad or Hey Gelf or Hey, I don't know Eastern units. I'm sorry, guys. Uh, <laughs> Ravenous. Try Ravenous. Hey, Hey Ravenous. There you go. If you want to uh, maybe not be on their side and maybe be on our side, that's that's a game changer right there. That That's pretty much recruiting the partisans. And if you knew the size of Ravnus, you would absolutely know what you were saying. I am right trusting you entirely. Oh, yeah, they're, 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 I've heard you mention them before. but They're fairly, at least when I, I haven't been East. Now, I, I don't want to be speaking out of my rear here because I haven't been East in a while. And so I don't want to be talking about the great and mighty Ravnus if they aren't around anymore. But I'm, I'm fairly certain there's still a, a fairly strong force in the, in the East and in the South. And they spell their name R-V-N-S, by the way. Ravnus. Ravnus. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool, right? But yeah, so those are the three sorts of the country. And you can apply this to both the micro and the macro, but the idea is that you're, you're managing the zones in your mind. You have a different plan for your different zones because different action is requ- required of you. And it's going to be different based on your army, how you want to move. But you got to be careful of different considerations, right? You know, if you're in your own country, you can maneuver how you want. If you're a neutral country, you got to be a bit more careful mm-hmm. gotta, because now you're in the area where you got to worry about javelins and arrows potentially. And then, I mean, if you're in enemy country, your maneuvers have to have like purpose. Yeah. You have to really move with purpose at that point. Do not hesitate. Hesitation kills. I mean, we, we've mentioned this. We're going to mention it a lot today. We've mentioned it a lot in every episode, basically. Yep. Uh, hesitation, like being careful is okay. Hesitating is bad. There's a very, very real difference between considering your options and hesitating. And it, and it really comes to, to, to matter on timing, 
right? How urgent is the situation? Because if you have all the time in the world to make a decision, you might be able to have a bit more leisure. Again, war is urgency, but you have a bit more time. But if the enemy's right upon you, you got to make a call. It's go time. It's yeah, it's, <laughs> you just got to decide something and go with it. So when we're moving around, one of the things we've talked about uh, in, the, in the multiple books is how to use your cavalry most effectively. Uh, and that's one of the best ways to maneuver through enemy country is with your cav. Now, what we haven't talked about is how to deal with the enemy's cavalry all that much. So when the other, when the enemy is bringing cavalry, and remember, for the sake of this show, we define cavalry not necessarily as mounted persons because um, horses aren't relative, aren't all that common in these games. Um, it's going to be a game changer. We're going to put foam on the hooves on like, the, dude, then <laughs> everyone will die and we'll get banned forever. I'll be a permanent archer forever. Like I can go in near a horse. Time I'm to go Mongolian that. horse archery, man. <laughs> like let's do this. <laughs> But the ways to deal with archers, if, if your opponent is using a bunch of flankers, basically, fast-moving uh, units or, or anything like that, we're, dealing, we're, we're, we're counting that as cav, which is your fast attack units. So how do you deal with, with an enemy who's got a lot of cav or whose cav is very effective? Well, the, the advice that Frederick gives here is actually rather on point, especially for 40k. One of these doesn't fit so well for, for like um, physical wargaming. At least, hopefully it doesn't. Please um, don't do this. Please don't do this. Um, but I guess, I guess it could. So these three things that he talks about for dealing with Cav are fire, snipers, and melee. I'll give you three guesses, which is the one we don't want you to do. When it comes to fighting your friends... <laughs> don't um, set them on fire. <laughs> lighting them on fire is, is inadvisable. That's just, it's, it's, it's a Tau thing. Uh, you guys can take it. We won't charge you a bit, but uh, don't light your friends on fire. But in terms of 40K, this is very applicable, right? So if you've got some groups that are very quick and moving in on you, having flame units, like literal flamer bearing units, which auto hit usually at like eight inches, that's pretty sweet. So anything coming at you is advancing into a wall of flame. That's, it is, that's a deterrent. I use it all the time with like my, I, I've got a, of course, I'm forgetting the name of this dude because I haven't played my Death Guard in a while, but he's the flamer elite. The Death Guard players are going to know exactly who I'm talking about. Jeez, Malark. And, uh, and he, I, I don't want to guess at it because there's two dudes next to each other in the codex and I always say the wrong one. And oh, so yeah. I'm not going to do that right here and just admit that I don't know it off the top of my head. Um, but he's got a, a beastly flamer. And once people know that, like you put him in a, in a strategic position, people avoid him. Oh yeah. They avoid him on purpose. I've got other goo machines in my, in my death guard list that are also likewise avoidable. And now with his recent engine war stuff, my entire ad mech force is basically just going to be fire. So, <laughs> um, I'm looking forward to that, but fire is good. Cause again, it's, it's not only a deterrent, but if they aren't deterred by it, then you get to light them on fire which lessens anybody's combat upon combat effectiveness uh, in my experience. When I'm on fire, I'm kind of distracted. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. I've, I, I'm about to say I've never been on fire and then I had to sit there and think about it for a second. I'm Real pretty, quick. Sure, pretty sure I've been on fire. When, uh, I know you've been on fire. Um, <laughs> I, I knew you in your 20s, man. Um, um, when Frederick is talking about fire, what, what gear would they have been using to set other troops on fire back in the back in the day because i mean we think of that battle and we think of like muskets and cannons are they just like molotoving people so you also had incendiary rounds oh, so that's fair. so one of the things you had was was rounds that were specifically designed to set things on fire you had good old torches which you could set large hay bales and stuff on fire so like if i know that the cab is coming this way i put up a bunch of hay bales i light them on fire yep you're set for a while there i forgot about incendiary rounds because you tend to think of it as just like here's a musket ball right but 
Uh, yeah, no, I mean, all like from the very first start of it, they were developing all sorts of different types of rounds for muskets and for cannons in particular. Cannons, mm, mortars, cannons would have thing. been super good for this kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and so, again, fire would have been very effective at deterring your cavalry from coming, but also in, in terms of, of something like 40k where you can have large amounts of flamer units, go for it. You know, if you've got a slower moving army like the Death Guard, if you're not using flamer units to to guard yourself, I don't know. I don't know what you're doing. But yeah, and, and then of course, also in the, with the realm of 40k, when you're dealing with any sort of quote-unquote air cav, so any of your like flyers, of course, those are one harder to hit typically because they're they're often supersonic. Flamers don't care about that. They auto hit regardless of however many negative modifiers are on there. So having a good, a good, at least a, a small portion of fire in order to deal with some of this faster stuff is a good idea. And then of course you got snipers. Snipers to say, you know what, that right there needs to die. So you've got your really good shooters who are who are just gunning for what you're going after. And of course, this applies to both physical and intellectual wargaming, because in intellectual wargaming, you've got actual snipers. And in physical game wargaming, we have archers. Yeah, it's real straightforward in that. Um, oddly, of all things, it makes me think I'm kind of considering getting a crossbow just for the weirdness factor of it. I mean, we rarely see them. And so I think people would just be like, Doi? well, and, and Sir Acrid out in Vegas has been doing a whole lot with crossbows and figuring out how to make them in theory, a practical weapon. Hmm. And I know Sir Roku locally is picking one up and yeah, plans to try it out. And I don't know if I will or not, I've, but I'm, I've been thinking about it a lot lately because it turns out that when you can't fight, you just start thinking about new toys that you would like to play with. It's true. It's true. I, I keep sitting here thinking about the new archery kit that I need to get. So I'm I'm right there. And of course, we're getting lightsabers because we're like, well, we can't fight. We might as well fight fight uh, the air with light. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Well, and it's just I'm I'm not much of a bell archer, but that one would give me a little bit of sniper, a little bit of air range, without being as I'm scared to break the bow that my father-in-law bought me. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, you got got like a relic item going on over there, no doubt. But again, if you've got a good sniper on your team, if you've got yourself a, a Zuyon or an Orion or a, or a Roku or somebody like that, somebody or, or a Talon, somebody who can really snipe down the enemy, uh, make sure that they're aware of this, those uh, flankers. Make sure they're aware of the Cav because they even, even if they don't kill the Cav, you don't have to kill Cav. All you have to do is leg Cav. You just have to keep them at a distance even. Like if you can keep them from charging in. But yeah, if you can leg them and leave them, that is... Oh, it's my favorite. I love they're no longer that. they're no longer cav at that point. It's so infuriating to people, especially those, those quick people that really enjoy being on the move. And you're like, nope, oh, I took a leg. What's going on? You can't move no more, can you? Yeah. Well, well, you can, but like slow, like. And if you do that, suddenly your spears have such an advantage. Like it's so good. Yeah, I, I mean, like I, I feel like if you take a leg as a spearman, your chances of winning just like quadruple at that point, especially mm-hmm. against like a shieldman. Um, but we digress. So you got fire, you've got sniper. And this last one, melee is fairly self-explanatory. You go forth and engage them with your melee fighters where you want to engage them. So, you know, you, you, you see somebody and they've run this same flanking maneuver the last two games. Um, so you send a few people to engage them. They don't necessarily have to beat them. They don't even necessarily have to like fight them. All they have to do is provide a physical barrier to prevent them from getting behind your lines. You just have to hold them. I've done it several times. Mm-hmm. We've, we've talked a lot in this about how important counterflankers are. Counterflankers are not always super active. It, they are just there to keep you from getting surrounded. Yep. And, and, they, and often they can just be a barrier. Sometimes as a counterflanker, you are better served not directly attacking the enemy and just being an obstacle because that you can kind of redirect them at that point. If you directly engage with them, you run the risk of being killed. 
and then your usefulness as a counterflaker has just kind of expired with you. It, there's no more advantage. Um, so yeah, and those are the ways of dealing with cavalry. And they work well for both intellectual and physical wargaming, with the exception of fire, which should be limited to something like 40k. <laughs> um, so at this point, we want to talk about this concept of moving in stages. And uh, when you're moving in stages, obviously your unit, if it's any larger than like five or ten people, it's not necessarily going to move all at the same time. Even if you are practiced at moving together, there's going to be different parts of the army that move. And so we're going to talk a little bit about the responsibilities of each of these parts in, in terms of the movement process. So let's talk with, let's start with something like the physical wargaming, something like Belagarth SCA Amp Guard. So when you've got your recon and advance party, this is your skirmish line. These are your, these are your people like Toto, like Atetsu, like Pakshaw, who don't necessarily enjoy fighting in the line and who are better served going out on their own and engaging the enemy one uh, in, in small action. Yeah, let them go play. And what this does is it, it, it arrests your enemy's movement because they can't just freely maneuver. They've got this, this wild element that is either on their flank or staring straight at them that if they maneuver one way or another they is, is providing a threat you've got somebody out there who's who's posing a threat not necessarily a big threat obviously they're not drawing the majority of the army to them because it's just one or two people but they're enough to make that army take pause well and i've seen them stop an entire group in one go you know because if you will just use toto here mm -hmm. if you ignore toto he's just gonna walk up behind you and eat you up yeah. but if you send your entire army after toto the other army you're facing is eventually going to get there. Like, so it's, uh, it, it can stop them entirely in their tracks. Best case scenario. Or the hesitation we were yep. talking about. So yeah, recon and advance party, uh, for one thing, they can operate this way and, and, and be a very offensive thing, fixing your enemy into a place that you can maneuver onto them as you want to. Uh, the other thing is that they're really good for making sure that you're aware of your enemy's position. So let's say you're on a field and you have multiple enemy units that you're going against. Um, if you're focused entirely on the unit to your left, it pays to have somebody who has been watching the unit on the right. So if they start moving at you, they can be like, Hey, you know, God squad coming up on the right. Yeah. Oh, you always want a rear guard. I'm so glad that that advanced, but we're not talking about rear guard yet. Oh, that's fair. But, but uh, at this point we're just standing still and we're looking around, but like, yeah, just knowing, having, having these bodies out there, this recon and advance party, it gives you options. Mm -hmm. It gives you options and it makes you not quite as open on any side. Now, in terms of uh, 40k, these are going to comprise of your smaller units that you send out to basically be chaff or objective holders. And they're ones who, you know, that they could be the main force, they could not be the main force, but they are kind of moving disparately to distract your enemy. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the diversions thing a little bit later on. But, but that's also the, and, and this, again, within 40k or any other sort of intellectual wargaming, your forward units are used to fix and reconnoiter your enemy. And that's just, uh, that's what their job is. So you want to make sure that they're good at that. You don't necessarily want to send uh, guardsmen unattended to do this because they have a tendency of getting et. Yeah, they use flashlights, man. They're not going to go. A uh, chimera with guardsmen in it, however, going to last you a lot longer. So uh, depending on what you're using, you're gonna, your recon in advance is going to look different. So after that, you've got the main body. And the main body is the most unwieldy portion. It is focused around whoever's driving the bus, whoever your commander is. Uh, it often contains the largest number of support weapons. So this is where you've got a bunch of spears, a bunch of archers, and of course, uh, your main sword and board line, your, your shield line, if you do have one, comes with your main body. Um, now, the job of your main body is not to get out of position 
and to make sure that it moves together. Because again, one of the hinging points of Frederick's military theory is making sure that you make the most of your numbers. So when you're moving someplace and you're attacking, you want to make sure that if your main body is engaged, your whole main body is engaged. Because uh, it's the only way you're going to get the usefulness out of it. You have to remember with Frederick that he was the small fry. He was outnumbered always. Which means even with the best army, or one of the best armies, he had to save every single person. Yep. And this is a good idea for us too, because the more people that you, you can save through any particular skirmish or small fight, that's another body that you have for later on. Yeah. If you... I lose all of my spearmen to Gelf archers in my very first engagement, and then my next fight, I'm in a heavy line skirmish with the BOF, and I don't have any more spearmen with me, it doesn't really matter that I won against the Gelf, because now I don't have the tools that I need to be the BOF. Yeah, that's that's entirely it. And if there are snipers, if there are a lot of, you know, archers or whatever, we're targeting people to make it less likely that you are going to get through this battle, even if you beat us uninjured. Soft targets. Yeah. Him. Yep. Yep. And so th this is important to remember. And so because of this reason, when you're moving your main body, you want to make sure it's hitting altogether. You're, mm -hmm. making, you're making the full use out of it because one, this means that you're going to win as, as quickly as possible. Less chance of somebody coming up behind you while you're distracted. Uh, it's just a good idea. And, and again, this is true for both 40k and for Belagar. And, and, and again, for intellectual and physical wargaming, I think. Because, yeah, the only time you want to divide your forces is, is if your, your intention is to bring them back together for the main action. Is well, what I've seen. And it sounds so basic. Like, oh, of course I'm going to do that. Why would I even need to think about it? But the bigger your army gets, the easier it is to, oh, we can afford to lose however many people and, and you, and not you even, can't really and not even necessarily that but it can also be a matter of if the command and control isn't good enough and your main body you know half of them decide to go left and half of them decide to go right and nobody's communicated what the overall plan is then you've taken your your punch out of both sides you know both both of them would have been better served going one way or the other so of course at this point we've been talking about the main body what comes after that is the rear guard and the important thing to stress here is that in something, especially like the physical wargaming, because in something like an intellectual wargaming where you have a fixed board, and I, and I know where my front and my rear are, the rear guard kind of makes sense as to exactly what it is, as the guys you put in the back. But in something like Belagarth or SCA, where the field is constantly shifting, where your relation to other units is constantly shifting, therefore the, the rear guard has to constantly shift as well. So in Belagarth, for instance, we have a phenomenon that occurs that we call the toilet bowl of death. Oh my god, the toilet bowl. And that happens when I start moving left to go engage Thumbs's unit, and Thumbs's unit starts moving left to go engage Kaji's unit, and Kaji's unit starts moving left to go engage Oroku's unit, and Oroku's unit starts moving left to engage my unit. Nobody's engaging anybody. We're just walking in a giant circle. Well, and then if anyone stops, they're suddenly going to get crushed by all three of those units that are working their way in. So that it's just, it's kind of a natural progression. I have seen it on every field I have ever been in. And I know they have it on DAG too, because I've seen it in the, in the East and DAG. I, I think they call it the same thing too, toilet bowl of death. And so you're inevitably going to find yourself in one of these if you do any sort of physical wargaming. And so in this particular case, the rear guard is not the person who is on the side of your army facing away from the battle, as you would normally think. The rear guard are the trailing guard. So if you're moving to the left, your rear guard are actually the unit on the right. And the reason this distinction is important is because the rear guard has a very, very, very important job. And that is to make sure that the rear is guarded. 
Mm-hmm. And if you are the rear guard, you need to know that you're the rear guard. For instance, if I'm in, if I'm in my unit in this particular scenario, and we start sliding to the left, and I'm looking to my right, and I'm the last dude on the right. There's nobody to my right. I'm on the last. Then you're the rear guard. But I start seeing somebody coming up really fast, and like I feel threatened, and I run away without telling the rest of my team. They don't have a rear guard. There's no rear guard anymore. And now I might feel like, I was, oh, but I was on the right. No. In this particular case, you were the rear guard because it's where you're moving away from that it matters. So again, if you find yourself in the rear guard, it's not a bad thing. Like being in the rear guard is not a position of like dishonor or lack of bravery. Um, the rear guard is a very important part. I, it, there's no military commander ever that would tell you to go out without a rear guard, ever. And the reason is because it's so important to the stability of the army. But just make sure it does its job. And its job is, is either to... Uh, destroy any enemy action to the rear or delay any enemy action to the rear so that the main body can reassess and come about to deal with the problem. Yeah. Mm. Communication. Even if you're not delaying, even if you're like, well, rear guard time to go. It's you need someone to tell them it's time to go. Yep. Yep. And so again, it, it doesn't, and this, this, these communication things, this is of course important at the realm and the unit level. But even if you're just on a random team of people put together, this communication is important. Hey uh, guys. Yeah. Just, just chat with each other. Just say what's going on. Um, so to finish out this section, we just have a couple of basically one-liners that I wanted to include from, from the book that didn't necessarily fit a theme per se, like a story, but they're just good points. And so I just, we kind of want to go through these and, and make sure that they were hit upon again. And the first one is, if you are offensive, you immediately are going to put your enemy on the defensive and on the back foot. Nine times out of ten. The unit that starts with the offense will keep it. So that, that's important. Like if your army is designed for defense, then you know, obviously you're, you're going for something a little bit different. But if you're not designed for defense, you want to have the initiative. You want to make sure that your opponent is trying to figure out what you're going to do next. You want to make sure that they're the ones who are making mistakes because you're forcing them to make mistakes. And that's best done on the offensive, because if you're on the defensive, then they got more time to do what they want to do. And that's one of the things that Frederick says in this chapter. He's like, if you actually want to rest, if you want your troops to actually have a rest, be on the offensive all the time. The best defense is a good offense is a truism, but there's a reason it's a truism. And I think it was the Seven Years' War. Uh, yeah, and it's... Uh, <laughs> There's a whole lot of newer people that will get really good at blocking at first. And they're just like, no, I just need to learn how to block. But you only have to mess up once if all you're doing is blocking right. for the battle to be over. I can mess up a bunch of times if you're not throwing shots back at me. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Thumbs hits on exactly a good point. The fact that when you're throwing shots, it gives you a chance to maybe think about it too. Like if I'm sitting there throwing shots and my opponent is on the defensive, I may not necessarily be intending for any of those shots to, to do much. But I mean, it lets me position you. But I can then position myself into a more advantageous place where I can throw something that does it. But I can do that because you're on the back foot. And again, this works well on the macro, on the micro, when you're dealing with large units and small units, um, the initiative matters. El Presidente, he does, uh, Warmaster Hakan himself, does it better than just about anyone else I've ever seen, where he'll, I mean, I swear he broke his wrist to do this, but he'll just bounce four or five shots and he just needs to move you like a quarter inch and that shield is not where it was before and it's just enough that with his twisty twisty wrist he can land the shot Mm -hmm. yeah and and that's exactly the point and he has the time and the space to be able to land it and of course as you said you get comfortable in your defense and slowly he's been shifting your shield or positioning to another side of your shield and then boom 
and you don't realize till whoops. And that offensive is, is it matters for that. So again, micro, macro, intellectual or physical wargaming, make sure that you're at least paying attention to who gets that initiative, to who, and it doesn't mean necessarily who's going first in the round. I've seen people go first in a game of Warhammer 40k and be on the back foot because of the events of that first round. Um, so just going first doesn't necessarily give you the initiative. I know as a game term, it does in 40k, but when we're talking in terms of, of like actual military theory. Um, the initiative goes to those who seize it, actually seize it. So seize the day. Carpe diem. The next point we wanted to make is control your own subsistence. And when we're talking about subsistence, we're not going to go delve too deeply into this because we just recently talked about chow. <laughs> um, but it's good to make sure again, that you know where your next meal is coming from, because I, I can't tell you how many events I've gone to where like half my team has disappeared well before lunch. And it's been like, where are you guys going? And they're like, oh, we got to figure out lunch. If you had a plan, we could have kept playing. If you had a plan, you could have kept fighting. Now, you know, if people need to take a break, if they need to take a rest, that's totally respectable. But if you're a person, especially a younger person who's got the energy for it, you know, you want to make sure you're on the field as much as possible. And that's going to happen primarily because you know where your food's coming from. You can just leave, get it, come back. Boom. Even beyond food, probably the most important one for this for us is water. Oh, yes. Oh my God, water. And we're seeing it a lot more often that, uh, events are doing hydration stations, mm -hmm. but I mean, even if it's just being aware of the hydration station, and even if they have them, I generally think have your own water. Mm -hmm. One, it tends to be more hygienic, just your own supply. That's true. And two, what if it goes out because you know there's 200 people at this event, 400, 600, whatever size event that it is, and they might run out of water. Yeah. yeah, I mean, even if it's getting refilled every hour, it's hot as heck. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, overheating. And dehydration is literally the most dangerous parts of our game. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we deal with concussions and broken limbs and, and sprains and that sort of thing all the time. And by far the most dangerous part of any sort of physical wargaming is dehydration. Pretty much any time I've seen an ambulance, which is not common, but it happens. It's because someone didn't get enough water and they passed out. And yeah. I don't want to go too deep into it, but like the guy, when I was in basic training, the guy sitting next to me on the bus, when we went to the obstacle course, perished because of dehydration. He had a, a, a heat, a heat stroke, like he had heat stroke and had to be taken away, went into a coma and then died two weeks later. Yeah. So we're not, we're not messing around about this. Drink water. And again, don't depend on the event to bring you water. You want to make sure that yours is squared away. Did they bring a hydration station? That's great. You have less to walk to fill up, but at least you have your own vessel. You know, you got to make, you just, just be prepared on this people. We don't want you dying. Even on the macro, bring yourself a little cooler of water to the event. Oh, they yeah. might not have running water there. Not every event does. Or if they do, sometimes that just means we have one source of water for however many people. Mm -hmm. It's just easier. Or Hammer 40K players don't think we've forgotten about you either. Just because your activity does not involve a bunch of running around and hitting people with actual sticks does not mean you are not consuming water and does not need to be like, I can't tell you the two events or the, 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 the tournaments that I've been to here locally, um, in both of them, somebody got like a, like a fainting issue. Like they got lightheaded and it was because they hadn't been drinking water. We've been in this room, this hot room full of sweaty nerds all day and they had been drinking soda or something like that. And, oh, and that's terrible. And, like, and they suddenly were like, terrible. Oh, oh man, I, I'm feeling really dizzy and really nauseous. When was the last time you had water? Well, I drank something about half an hour ago. When was the last time you had water? 
Um, I don't think I've had that today. Well, <laughs> that's why, man. No, I do it at my job. If I ever like, cause I just move boxes for a living. And if I ever get too worn out or just like, God, I feel kind of queasy. Go get some water, sit down for like 30 seconds and you'll probably be okay afterwards. Yep. Yep. So again, without drilling this point too hard again, uh, control your subsistence and subsistence in this particular means means anything that you're going to want whether that's food water or anything extracurricular make sure you control your own subsistence um the next point to make is use diversions to divide your enemy forces now again this is going to be kind of confusing because you're like wait a second just 15 seconds ago you told me not to divide my main body how am i supposed to create diversions if i don't divide my main body well let me answer you you can do, create diversions with that advance and recon party. Yeah, it's everything we already told you. It's your Toto, it's your Paksha, it's yep. your Toto and Paksha. Oh you my can God, also, terrible. You can also initially split your forces into like one or two smaller forces and, and threaten multiple zones. But then once you decide where you want to attack, you want to bring all those forces back together to support the main action. Mm-hmm. That's the idea. You can spread your force out to threaten a large area. But when you're actually going to attack, you want to bring it together. But diversions are great. Diversions spread out the enemy. And if you can get your enemy spread out and then you start maneuvering nine times out of 10, if you're not the dude we're talking about in today's battle, you're going to be able to to outmaneuver your enemy with that initiative. Yeah. The pincer maneuver exists for a reason. It does, but it has to be coordinated properly. Oh yeah. That's the big portion. It's not, I send this half of my army at you and then this half of my army at you. No, it's, it's my whole army is hitting you just from different sides, but that coordination is what's important. And of course it's important for any sort of diversion. The last point to make during this movement with a purpose section is what cannot be done by force must be done by stratagem. So like we were saying before, like we're going to talk about in the book after Vegetius with asymmetrical warfare, let's say you've got an opponent who is considerably larger, considerably better equipped, and considerably more numerous than you. How do you deal with that? Well, you got to, you got to use some sneaky, you got to use some old man tricks as my war master would Hmm. say. Um... And so what what cannot be done by force must be done by stratagem. If your opponent is an extremely good blocker, make sure that you're catching them on on like a back foot. Make sure you catch them as on like a counter strike or something like that. Or if they're a really aggressive fighter, again, make sure you try to catch them on a counter strike. But just because somebody is better than you or bigger than you doesn't mean they're going to win. I've fallen victim to noob foo all the time because they've done something that I didn't expect. That's the biggest thing. If you, the, the thing that you, if the thing that the enemy least expects is what is going to work the best. Yeah. I mean, your war master talks about noob foo more than anyone else. I've literally heard him say, don't worry, man, you were just too good to win. And he meant it seriously he did, because, yeah. uh, w- once we get more experience with fighting, we start to pick up habits. We start to patterns, patterns and what to expect to come. Because even if everyone's got different fighting styles, there's the same basic rules. If you don't know those basic rules, you try some weird stuff sometimes. And most of the time it does not work, but every now and then a new person will pull out a move that you're like, that's not going to work. Oh, how did you even do that? <laughs> <laughs> they're like i have no idea i'll never replicate it yeah 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 but that's noob foo for you that's noob foo it's it's doing the unexpected and so i honestly think that as fighters even after we move out of the noob phase you should always still have an element of that noob foo to your fighting you should always still have an element of the unpredictable because otherwise people are going to know exactly what you're going to do and they're going to be able to defend against it i used my favorite shot too often and i can't use it in stygia anymore can't use it no more high cross uh lefty c rap oh lefty c rap that doesn't work anymore not nearly as much as it used to because you and i grew real fond of the lefty c rap and everyone went oh 
the entire, I positioned again. Most, this is of, most of the realm is right-handed. Dumbs and I are both left-handed, so that means that everybody's kidney was like right there. And for like two or three years, we ate them. We just ate up some kidneys, and then Stigy was like, "Wait a minute." I'm tired of having these bruises on my right kidney. Well, and they <laughs> Stygia caught on too, because they're used to, usually in a realm, there's only like one decent left-handed fighter. And in this realm, you know, we had you, we had me, we had Sir Dickie, yeah, yeah, and yeah, a rotating yeah. cast of other people coming in and out that were lefties as well. We had an unusually high number of left-handed fighters for Stygia. Yeah, we have. Uh, so uh, we overused our favorite shot. The one that every lefty loves, and now we don't get to use it. But at least we trained our realm against it. Yeah. So like whenever no. our realm goes someplace and a lefty's like, I'm going to get you, Stygians are like, I don't think so. Not with that shot. I, I love watching Stygians fight lefties from other places because they'll throw the shot and the Stygian will block it without thinking and you can see the lefty go, oh no. I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> All right. So I think that's, that's movement with a purpose. I, I think, think so, yeah. All right. So we're going to move with a purpose onto the next section, which is... The river. That was terrible. <laughs> so this river concept, I'm not sure if I've ever actually gone into detail on it on this show. I've no, I've ex- I've explained it quite a bit to my students. So any of you who've graduated from the Gladiator Academy of Hellgate High School will be very, like, bored to tears with my concept of the river because you will have heard me talk about it ad nauseum. Class of 2006. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, yes, this river, but I don't know if I've actually gone into it on the show or if I've just said, you know, I'll talk about it later. So if I have gone into it, we're going to do a quick refresher. If I haven't gone into it, well, here you are, episode 28, I'm finally talking about my concept of the river. So, obviously, in terms of military science, when we're talking about what Frederick the Great is talking about, he is talking about a literal river, a moving body of water that goes into a low point in the ground that one must cross to get to another place and that it's very wet and often deep. Yes, we all know what a river is. <laughs> well, you know, some people come from the desert, so they okay. may be unfamiliar. You know, we, we have listeners in Australia. There's two through our town. So I've I never been to Australia. It. I have no idea if they have any rivers in Australia. Rivers just don't exist in the Southern Equator. I can't finish that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> We're truly not that ignorant. Please don't think we are. Please don't hate me. Um, yeah, it's hard to, it's sarcasm. I'm bad at sarcasm to begin with. And then without like the facial expressions of me, like looking at you, like you don't believe me. Don't believe me. Like, I don't know. I don't know how believable I am. I'm Before sorry. the year 2020, I would have assumed that people knew I was being sarcastic there, but I just, I don't play that game anymore. I'm sorry, Australia. I'm sure you have rivers. I'm sure of it. Um, so we all know what a real river is. And we've already talked about that there are some events that have uh, places that actually have real rivers on them. So in that case, then all of this stuff is going to be very literally true. But in most cases, we're dealing with a place that doesn't necessarily have a actual river running through it. However, every single battlefield has a metaphoric river. And this river that I'm talking about is that space that exists between two hostile forces. We all know it. We talked about it earlier, this neutral zone, right? This, uh, um, the DMZ, the place you don't want to step when it's, when you're dealing with two forces, it's the, the, when you're not quite colliding, it's that zone in between when we're dealing with the actual battlefield, it's all those zones of friction in between your, your, your various units, your various realms, whatever. And so the river is, it, it can change like, not like a literal river, but like the river on the battlefield moves when the units move with it. And so it's, it's something that you can't just sit there and take a snapshot at the beginning of the battle and say, I know where the river is, I'll avoid it. 
the river moves. The river moves every time you move. So like it's something that you have to be constantly aware of is this neutral zone and how you relate to it. It's so, kind of like in a real river, like the tides and the flows and the eddies and the everything that... Because when we think of a river, we think of it just like body of water. No, I mean, if you've ever floated down the river, it's suddenly you've been circling the same spot for a few minutes and you don't know how you got there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Certain sections of river, you don't want to put your leg too deep because there might be a riptide. You all know about that on the coast, riptides. Yeah, people in the ocean are like, what are you talking about with rivers? This is straight up. No, we get those too. Um, So yeah, but but on the battlefield again, um, that's my concept of the river. So the river is this place and all of the the advice that Sun Tzu and Machiavelli and Frederick give about rivers kind of also applies to that neutral zone on the battlefield. Because again, when when we're talking about these classical battles, right? When we're talking about most wars, it involves the two sides. And so you've got two very well-defined edges of the battlefield. You don't often have four or five or ten of like different politically aligned factions all fighting one another within the same hundred by hundred yard area like that just doesn't happen in the history of the world like I, I'm, I'm sure it's happened somewhere there's some there's some some place where there's somebody's shaking their fist at me being like oh what about the battle of uh, i don't know a stand stuff yeah like and, and, and i'm like oh I, I totally forgot about the battle of i don't know a stand like my, my bad <laughs> um but you know aside from the battle of i don't know a stand th- these this is this is a situation that does not even happen and so this this environment this climate that is created on the battlefield is rather unique to what we do in physical war gaming because it doesn't happen even with 40k we often don't do multiple armies going against each other it's just one army against another army so now that i've thoroughly bored you with this concept of the river we're going to talk about how to uh cross it if you are prevented from crossing it directly again if you've got an area where you're like oh i want to get to this side of the river aka this side of the battlefield or whatever and there's nobody standing in front of me you walk there Mission accomplished. You did great. Now, if there's somebody standing in the way who you don't necessarily want to engage there because of X, Y, or Z reason, well, now we're talking about uh, being prevented from crossing directly. So the easiest idea, that Frederick says, is to use a distant and easy crossing point. That works just as well as here. It's real straightforward. Walk around. If, if they're not on the edge of the world and you can just take the long way, take the long way. There's nothing saying you have to go through something if the wiser thing is to go around it. When the rear guard gives you the questioning look, you go, we're cool. We're cool. And just keep going. And you just keep going. That's fine. And again, depending on the size of your force and how hungrily you're eyeballing them, they may or may not buy it. But, uh, but yeah, just go around. If you, need to, if you need to move to another part of the field, obviously this is the easiest one. The other thing he suggests is islands. And so, of course, in a physical sense, you're building like pontoons or bridges between islands to make it easier to, to go across a large section of river. In this particular case, we're referring to an island as an area without activity. So every, everywhere else on the field is otherwise busy, otherwise filled with combat or potential combat. But in these small areas of inactivity, these are what you call your islands. And you don't necessarily want to linger on the islands. Remember, this island is in the river. And you never want to stay in the river longer than you have to, because the river is a very vulnerable spot. And so with any sort of river crossing, the idea is to get across as quickly as possible, because to be caught in the middle of the river, it spells disaster. It spells absolute disaster. Um, so using these islands, using these, these small areas of inactivity to basically island hop to another side of the field, especially if you've got a smaller force, this works really well. 
I, I do this a lot. Oh, yeah. The, this is the best way to survive if you are outnumbered, is going from island to island, kind okay, of if you can negotiate people into fighting each other by being like, I've I've got you excited, I've got you excited, and I'm going to escape to this island. And both of them are like, oh, uh, crud. I guess, uh, I guess <laughs> we're angry now. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, the islands works really well, especially if you've got some time or if you've got really good maneuver. The next thing that Frederick recommends is to use a bend in the river. And obviously for a real river, this is a literal bend. But what we're talking about in, in wargaming, it would be a place where two forces are already engaged with one another. So this is a place where the river has bent upon itself. It's pain and the, the danger is reduced because they're already fighting somebody. And so if you're far enough away from them and you're not making any aggressive maneuvers or any aggressive talk, um, most of the time they're like, you know what? They're moving by peacefully, and we've got somebody who's already occupying our I attention. I got stuff going on. Yeah, so moving quickly by a group of two forces that are already engaged. That's a bend. That's a good idea to do. Feign multiple crossings. If you've got somebody who's watching you really intently, not necessarily engaging, but they're trying to like stop your motion, feign multiple crossings. Again, you want to cross as one big force, but like make them break up what they've got going on in order to like uh, be able to concentrate in such a way that they can't oppose you anymore. Am I going this way? Am I going that way? Am I going this way? Oh, no, but I was going that way. Remember, I think it was the last chapter that Frederick said when you, like, if you threaten three different zones and they pull all their defenses to two of those zones, you go to the other one. one. Yeah, so this is a great way of opening, again, you don't necessarily have to have a plan when you're feigning multiple, they could be all just multiple options, be like, you know, we could cross here, here, and here. Let's try them all. Oh, you know what? Option three now looks the best. Everybody, boom, we're piling here, and you're gone. Everyone in the van, it's time to go. That's right. That's right. And so... Uh, feigning multiple crossings, always a good idea. Keeps your enemy guessing as to what your true intention is and also allows you to make a, a decision later on. And the last point to be made here is on making and maintaining a bridgehead because after your crossing is accomplished, the most important thing to do at that point is to make a bridgehead. This is also the same thing as a beachhead. Like if you're doing some sort of naval landing, a beachhead is the same idea where you've got now a force on a bank of a river with, we, we got water to your back. And enemies to the front, potentially. And so the idea with a bridgehead is that it is, is, main, is defended to such a point that you can use it for easy access both ways. Because obviously you're going to be using it to ferry troops forward to the battle. But if the worst should arise, if you should happen to lose the initiative or, or, or be pushed back, you also want a secure location to retreat from the battle. One of the places where this is most straightforward is in a popular Belagarth combat style of bridge battles. Very literal. Uh, yeah. I mean, you those first three people that are getting off of the bridge, it's real tempted to be like, well, it's time to run and unleash, you know, heck. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but maybe don't. Yeah, the more Wait till you have thing. a few people with you. Yeah. And, and make sure that that bridgehead is secure before moving on. That's a, that's a really important point. Um, because otherwise, if you get too far in and everybody's all spread out and suddenly you do have to pull back, they, if you're not defended at your bridgehead, that means they can cut you off. Mm-hmm. And now you are in enemy country without the hope of reinforcements and without an easy way out, which is not a place that you want to be. It's basically, if we look at all the people we've been talking about, losing your supply lines. Right. And nothing has killed an army, most armies in history, faster than losing their supply lines. Exactly. 
Exactly. And so you, you do not want to be divided from your easy access and egress uh, from the rest of your forces. And so these are the important points to make when you're, when you're crossing a river. And when you're thinking about crossing that danger zone in the middle of the field, um, where are the best places to do it where you're not going to be engaged before you want to be engaged? Because again, the whole point of fighting is we're going to fight. Some people are sitting there being like, what are you doing moving around somebody when you could fight them? And, and, and you know, some, some fighters, some units may have a totally different philosophy for this than what I'm expressing here. And, and that's totally okay. You're, this podcast is not the definitive edition on wargaming strategy. Uh, it is just thumbs and eyes perspective research on, on the subject. And so we want the fight, but we want the fight with the most advantage we can possibly get. Yeah. If you just want to punch, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Nope. Just go find a good punch. There's a place for you. But if I want to win, and I want to win. Let's be honest. I like winning. And there's, you know, 10 units on the field. I can't just punch the first one that I see. Unless your, unless your unit uh, counts for nine other units, unless you've got that many people. In which case, uh, do do what you want, I guess. Like, and even then, as we talked about, like, I mean, you could lose that many people, but why would you? Right. So yeah, these, this is the maneuver, the, the maneuver on the river, right? So the opposite side to this, and of course, Frederick is very thorough, so he covers these both like section, like back-to-back sections, um, would be defensive rivers. Let's say that you are the one who has a, a river in, like as a defensive barrier, and you're trying to use it um, to protect against an enemy coming in. So you just want to sit still, basically. Instead of wanting to move around on the field and get to another place by crossing rivers, you just want to occupy your own little slice of heaven, which I have done often. Like, this is, this is honestly my more common of my, the usage of the river is just not going in it, of just finding a nice defensible location, def- like having a good setup so that I can engage on my terms. Well, and even if we take it outside of your uh, metaphor here, it could just be as simple as, edge of the world on my right side right that is one less side that i have to worry about well not so much because remember within the course of this uh, uh metaphor the river can be crossed that's true whereas the river cannot be crossed that's fair um but but it's the same idea where um like you say you got the river and you're you're trying to make sure that your opponent isn't doing exactly what we just advised to do so how do you do that well we've already advised it before and we're going to advise it uh several more times is the idea of pickets and sentries and this is your skirmish line. These are your people who are out, like your Pagan, your Pakshas, your Totos, your Kitetsus, who are out there. I mean, like most of the Dark Angels would fall in this category. <laughs> Just um, the all of me. And, and they're out there engaging the force. They're out there making sure that you are aware of where the enemy forces are. Oftentimes, a good sentry and picket line will just discourage the enemy from approaching you at all, especially if there's a softer target nearby. If there's a less fierce-looking um, village or army nearby to, for, uh, for a unit to pillage, they're going to go after it. That's just, you know, it's survival of the fittest or something like that. Like, you're not going to go after a hard target, unless you've got, like, a vendetta. Like, then you might go after the hard target first, but most of the time people are like, where can I get some easy kills in and get a good position? So again, having a, a good sentries and pickets, it, it defends you and also is going to alert you when the enemy is coming towards you. The next point to this is to really just go through some mind games yourself and think, where are my weak points? Where would I attack? If I was uh, on the other team looking at this uh, formation, where would I want to hit? What points would I think were vulnerable? And then defend there. Like, play a little mind game with yourself. Again, if you're being pressed, there's only so much uh, indecision that can occur. But if you've got some time to play with, make sure that you're, you've got your people set up in such a way that if some, somebody does hit you, you're able to respond. Yeah. 
And on that same note, you want to center your forces on your front. So let's say you've got a front that is uh, 50 feet wide. You want to make sure that you're about as close to that 25 foot mark as you can be, uh, because then you can respond in any direction. You've got equal coverage and this kind of makes sense. And, and that way, the other thing to this is you are not going to be as easily divided because if you've got like a strong right flank and a strong left flank, and then a very weak center, what's to stop the enemy from hitting you in the center? And then making sure that they divide your forces and hit one side or the other. That's it's kind of the dream in some ways if they're spread far enough. I love it. I love it when I, like, I, it will sometimes happen. Remember what I was talking about earlier when, like, you're not communicating, your main body decides to go different ways? I wait for that on national fields. Like, I love to stand right in the center and just stand there and wait. Because eventually, like, a lot of times people just drift apart and this big just old gap. Enough. This big old gap will, will pop up and you're like, hey, archers. Have fun. You guys get one shot, and then I'm on you. So I hope you can fight. You can fire well under pressure. It is pressure. classic archer hunting, though. It's so good. The look in their eyes, and they're like, oh, no. There's nothing between me and that person. <laughs> and that person looks hungry. I don't get to do it as much since I went on to primarily spear. but uh, Yeah, you're less in, well, I mean, like, a spear, if you can get it down, you've got that reach. You could be a very effective archer. Oh, yeah, no, if I can, uh, I, I just have to get closer. But the, the, the initial push is a little harder. <laughs> True that. True that. Uh, so yeah, center your forces on your front. Um, and then this is the point that we've been making, to, uh, like avoiding for yourself, but like something to always look for. If somebody is crossing the river, attack them before they finish crossing. Because they're going to be in an awkward position. Oftentimes, if they're attacking midstream, quote unquote, metaphorically, this is going to put them dangerously close to another unit. I don't know many units who aren't going to be like, ooh, Easy pickings. And well, their back is to me and they're busy. Right, right. Like that's just, there's most, most units will look at that and go, I'm on it. Even if I'm not actively like getting involved in that grind right there, we'll take a couple extra shots. Sure. Just to like, oh, whoops. Oh, oh okay. Because it's less people you have to kill with leg. If they happen to win, it's less people you have to kill later. Yeah. And so d- trying to not necessarily, you don't even have to have a plan. Like this person, like you don't have to have to like tell this unit, oh, we're going to pull them past and you're going to hit them. Oftentimes it's just an attack of opportunity, but you can count on people to be opportunists. So again, attack people midstream, make, and, and, and if you can keep an enemy to their back, you can often pull that person into the fight and the enemy of my enemy is my friend, which ends up working out here. And that same idea, if you can have support on either or both sides, so in a particular, like this idea of a bridge battle, where you have a set bridge that's going across the field, kind of an edge of the world on both sides that you can't step off of or you, you fall to your death. Um, and then like uh, uh, the ability for archers to stand uninhibited, the support on either sides comes from that in a lot of ways. Because as people are advancing down the center of the bridge, there's fire coming from the sides. Mm-hmm. Now, if you've got spears coming at you down the center of the bridge, and arrows coming at you from the side. You're having a bad day. You're having a bad day. <laughs> There's really not another answer to that. And on that same archer idea, uh, uh, Frederick recommends that you occupy the heights. And archers are kind of this occupying the heights. Often there's like hay bales or something like that that they can stand on in the background and be able to lob arrows safely down into the group. And, and again, the more archers that you can get at good angles, just increase your chances massively. Because even if they don't kill that many people, most people don't like marching into archers. Well, and even if you don't have, you know, put them up on hay bales, because as we've talked about, we tend to do pretty flat fights. The way that our arrows arc 
mean that they kind of automatically are coming from a similar, like higher perspective. That's true. And it's just another level of, it's literally another dimension of combat that you have to think about. You know, I'm going up against you across the table from me. It'd be a terrible place to fight. There's microphones everywhere, but it is just straight, like, you know, there's like a three foot area of where it's coming from. But if I'm have stuff lobbing over at you at the same time, you have to lift that shield. If nothing else, I got to make choices and man, like I might be able to come in, like get that your leg there. And that completely changes the game. When you make your opponent have to make choices that increases the chances of them making a mistake. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of the point here. And that's the river. That's what, that's what, um, uh, Frederick had to say about the river. Do you have anything? No, I yeah. then. I think, I, again, any you of my students... You have metaphored us through this. Yeah. I'm sure my students are, again, beating their head against some sort of brick wall somewhere, being like, we've heard this before. Look, man, if they don't want to hear stuff they've heard before, then this podcast might not be the place for them. You make a compelling point. Um, and speaking of things that my students absolutely would have heard before, I'm going to be ranting about the general of this next battle when we talk about Fredericksburg. <sighs> So we're not just going to argue with the dead guy. We are going to mercilessly mock the dead guy in this episode a lot, to be honest with you. But before we do, there is one thing that Burnside got very correct in his life. That's true. There there was one thing. That was his facial hair. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like if... If you have been through high school, you have probably heard of this guy. I think he's the legend is at least he, his name is the origin of sideburns. I mm-hmm. uh, don't know if that's actually true or not. I'm going to assume it is because I love that story. <laughs> but seriously, this man is the quintessential civil war facial hair. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you I like, he just, he just has the exemplary useless aristocrat feel to him, which is just. So, so prevalent to what we're talking about. I'm sure it's super important, but I just, I can't think of Burnside without just a little bit of facial hair envy. And I can't talk about Burnside without picking a fight with a dead guy. Ah, he was so bad at his job. He did make one really good call. In his career, he made one extremely good judgment call. And that's when he told President Lincoln that he was not fit to lead the Union Army. Apart from that, <laughs> so as a slight precursor to this, we're doing the Battle of Fredericksburg, we are, as yeah. we mentioned. American Civil War, December 13th, 1862. Lincoln had been really wanting a big victory. Yeah. He really wanted a big victory, make sure that, you know, we finish up the war pretty quick. And he was not happy with the general before Burnside who had been leading everything. McClellan. McClellan, thank you. I did not worry too much about remembering everyone's names because I know you have this one back and forward. Yeah, I love the Civil War. Uh, McClellan wasn't quite aggressive enough for what Lincoln was wanting. So he replaces McClellan, decides Burnside's going to do it. Burnside had just... As much as we're making fun of him, had just had a couple of decent victories going on. Yeah, he, he, well, at Antietam, he had not had a victory. In fact, I mean, he he basically did hear what he did at Antietam, so I don't want to give too many spoilers. But, um, but he was a semi-competent, um, like basically corps or wing commander. Like he he could follow orders pretty well. He just was completely unimaginative and did everything by the book. Which, when you're fighting somebody like Lee. 
isn't going to work. Now, Lee was concerned. I mean, they were replacing generals so often during this time period in the war that Lee had remarked to one of his aides that he was afraid that they were going to find somebody who could figure him out. (laughs) Uh, And Burnside was aware that he was not this guy. He was. (laughs) He was like, so... No, he had refused it before. McClellan, he had actually been offered it before, and then he had refused it. Was given to McClellan. McClellan got sacked, and Burn and they were like Burnside, you're it. And apparently, he was like close to tears when they were delivering this information to him. Well, and he's like, I can't do it. And Lincoln's like, Okay, well then I'm gonna go pick that guy, Hooker. Hooker, thank you, uh, Major General Joseph. Yes, Joseph Hooker, mm-hmm. uh, and who. Burnside was like, wow, you know, I'm not necessarily prepped for this, but he's really not prepped for this. So of the two of us, I guess I'm your guy. And after he assumed command, he did come up with a bit of a plan. But well, let's let's talk about some numbers real quick. Um, So Burnside was commanding a fairly large force at this point, especially when it came to the American Civil War. He was commanding a force of 100, uh, roughly 120,000 soldiers. That's a lot of people. It's a lot of people to keep organized when you don't have radios. The Confederacy, however, at the at the highest point of this battle, when when both with both Longstreet and uh, Jackson had had assembled, um, the army only was up at ninety thousand. Now this was going to be the largest army that Lee had ever commanded, but it was still much smaller than Burnside's force. However, spoiler alert: Burnside lost ten point five percent of his forces, while Lee only lost six percent. So that's a like Burnside lost the casualties for the Union were 12,653 at the end of this one, whereas only the Confederacy only lost 5,377. Well, and remember, almost every general we've talked about on this, or every uh, author that we've had on this, has said, you want roughly a quarter to a third more troops than your enemy has? Everyone but Frederick, basically. Yeah. And because he just knew he was never going to have it. So... By all accounts, everything was like how burnt they want. They would have wanted to be on Burnside's side, I guess. And yeah, and there are a lot of things, especially numbers, almost always favored the Union throughout this war. And and for the first half of the war, the Union got its butt licked, kicked, butt kicked. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> I just had my 12-year-old moment. I'm sorry. Um, yes, they got their hiney whipped um, uh, a lot. And and you might think well, they had the larger numbers, and, and in most cases, they had the better equipment. So why was this the case? Uh, there's actually a number of factors going on in this. I mean, this, is, this doesn't necessarily have to do specifically with Fredericksburg. This is just the American Civil War in general, because you may have noticed that even though like the union ended up winning we haven't had a whole lot of high praise for union generals we're about to rip on burnside for like an entire battle report uh so so what was it about the south why did the south have all these good commanders why why did they get these imaginative and skilled commanders well there were two different contributing factors that led to that by by my research the first one is the 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 fear the sheer geographical point that west point academy was in a secession state yeah so that meant that a lot of the loyalty, especially like so all the instructors of that academy, right? Um, we're, uh, we're all in Virginia. Yeah. And we're probably Virginians. So, so when, the, when the secession was voted into place, uh, they lost most of the staff of West Point at that point. Well, and the thing to remember that is different than how we tend to view the country today was that the state, in a lot of cases, was more important than the country as a whole. Oh, yeah. For many people, they were Virginians before they were Americans, which is not 
quite how we roll as much pretty much since the Civil War. Yeah, most people, at least most Americans that I've run into, refer to themselves as Americans. Very few people introduce themselves, oh yeah, I'm a Georgian. Yeah. They might say I'm from Georgia, but that's not like they're... they're... Yeah, like I'm Montanan, but if I'm going to, I don't know, New Zealand, when people ask where I'm from, I'll probably be like, oh, you know, the United States before I'm like, oh, Montana. I mean, most people don't know where Montana is to begin with, but... Um, but yeah, so this, that was a, a, a good point of contention here. The loyalty at this time often went to the state and not to the federal government as a whole. Now, that wasn't to say, like, there was a, a very famous Alabama Corps that was union side. Um, and, that, and that was one of the personal guard, wasn't it? Um, Sherman. We had talked about Sherman, and he yeah. actually had a, a personal honor guard of Alabamans. So it, it wasn't a 100% thing, but it was a really major factor. So all these great Virginian generals colonels like Lee. officer corps uh all stuck with one side sometimes even when disagreeing with the confederacy lee Doesn't and quite forgive it but lee and ap hill both actively disagreed with the with the, the point of slavery like they uh, and i know other commanders did and i'm not saying that that forgives the fact that they were fighting on that side i'm just saying that like it, it wasn't a, a basket like it wasn't mm-hmm. like not everybody felt the same about secession no matter which side that they were on the other thing, so so again, West Point seceding with basically Virginia uh, led to that uh, contributing a large number of high quality cadets and officers to the, the Confederacy. The other thing that contributed to this was that the South for a long time had been able to maintain a landed aristocracy because of the institution of slavery. Now, because of this, the, the aristocracy, the landowners, did not have to work as hard and could devote their time and their youth's time to things like horseback riding, shooting, sword play, uh, studying military tactics, games, that sort of thing. And so while the institution of slavery is absolutely horrible, it did lead to the this this genteel aristocratic warrior culture in the South that did produce a lot of very quality officers. Because they didn't have anything else to do. And it, was, and it was especially for the time, like for the time and like the way that the leading was done and the way that the fighting was done, that kind of officer corps proved extremely effective. Now, again, the Confederacy lost the war. So obviously it wasn't an end-all, end-all. And eventually the industrial might um, of the North ended up winning out. And the numbers. And the numbers. So again, while the South may have gotten West Point, the North got Ellis Island, right? So they may not have had the most skilled fighters uh, in their army, but they did have a lot of them. Welcome to America. Here's a uniform. Go on your way. (laughs) Yeah. Prepare to serve your country. What country? I've just arrived from Ireland. Well, now you're an American, so enjoy the Civil War. (laughs) Um, Yeah, if you've never seen Gods and Generals, by the way, it will break your heart. Like you will, you you will weep uncontrollably for the Irish Brigade. Like I, I make fun right now, but in all honesty, America treated them very, very badly, and and there were actually riots. Like uh, um, there's another movie, Gagans in New York, that takes place during this time period because so many immigrants were like, um. Why are we being forced to die for a country that we've just arrived yeah, at? I've been here 20 minutes and now I'm in the blue. Great. So Thank you so then much. Now there was race riots in New York uh, led by William Poole, like, a.k.a. Bill the Butcher. So um, again, all that aside, this is the environment to which we come. So, so again, initially in the war, you had a lot of really good wins from the South because one, the North just assumed this was a small rebellion and that a good large force would take care of it. They had overconfidence on their side. And then the South had experience. And most of the veterans at that point. Yeah, because a lot of veterans from the Mexican-American War were fighting in the Civil War 
And they were on the South because... Not all of them, mind you. Because like Grant and Sherman both served in the Mexican-American War and they ended up on the Union side. Mm -hmm. So not all of them, but a, a large portion, a very noticeable margin went to the South. And so that is kind of what we're looking at here. It, uh, and this is a long thing to talk about to get back to Fredericksburg. But the thing to remember here is as much as we're going to rip on Burnside, the the Northern military officer corps was literally scared of the Southern one. Right. And there was a whole them, lot of intimidation. They were new to it too. Like most of the, the people were in command, especially here, like Burnside's command was people who were not experienced at this level. Sumner, Hooker, and Franklin had not really commanded at this level before. And they were new to the corps that they were commanding and Burnside was new to command. And so you had officers who were not necessarily as up to date as the ones on the other side, and they were new to their specific command. Yeah, they don't have that muscle memory. Yet. Right, right. And so, uh, like, even I, I, I would not have wanted to go against Lee. Like, I'm not saying he would have been a pushover. I'm not saying Burnside had an easy job here. Like, Lee was a ferocious commander, and at this point in the war, had already worked up a very good reputation for chewing up northern generals and spitting them out. And so anybody who got put into this hot seat, and on top of that, not only did you have the pressure of going against somebody who was incredibly good and had basically an undefeated record at this point, but you also had the pressure from Washington because the newspapers, Lincoln, the War Department were all breathing down the neck of whoever was sitting in the Union general seat and saying, we need a quick victory, whatever you can do to get a quick victory. Like the newspapers, like if you took a day longer than they thought you should, they would just roast you alive. And so there was this incredible political pressure uh, for the Union generals as well. So not only were they less experienced and they knew it because their classmates were on the other side and they knew where they placed in West Point, uh, but they also were, were dealing with this massive pressure. Well, and with, you know, stuff like the newspaper, something that we don't necessarily think about as much is this is hardly the first war where there's been a printing press or a newspaper press going on. Obviously, I mean, by the Revolutionary War, Benjamin Franklin was running his own newspaper, but had in things like trains, quicker communication than had ever really been going on. Sometimes the war was taking place right in the backyard of the newspaper press. Yeah. So people were finding out real fast what was going on i mean think about as close to real-time information has been had as could be had at this point yeah think about how much uh live tv reporting affected vietnam, vietnam yeah. or any of the middle eastern wars that we've been involved in there's just too many to pick a specific several. one um several, yeah. this is the first time that anything like that had ever really happened especially to an american troops sure Sure. And, and uh, yeah, so this, this, uh, this yellow paper journalism, as it would later become to call, uh, be called, uh, could ruin careers. It could absolutely ruin careers. And so, I mean, it can do the same right now. Look at what bad press does to people, um, whether for, for good or for ill. Like, it, you know, bad press ruins your career. And so for a general who, you don't get to that point. You don't get to be a general of the army without being political. You just don't. It's not how it works. Um, and so... Yeah, this was this was kind of a lose-lose situation at this point. And so Burnside comes up with this plan. And to be honest, it was actually a pretty decent plan. And he maneuvered and got it underway fairly quickly and actually caught Lee by surprise. One of the nice things about the Civil War and one of the things I've enjoyed studying it so much is that because we have the maps from both sides and they're both in our language and we have the journals and the 
um, like orders and such from both sides and they're in our language, it is really easy to be able to know what happened or at least get a really clear picture of what probably happened at this time. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we know that Burnside's plan hinged on taking Richmond. It was, it was this whole, like very worn out way of thinking of if you seize the enemy's capital, of course they will capitulate. Now, they had dealt with the war being close hand before. We, we covered that when Lee first took charge during the Seven Days Battle, uh, they were really close yeah, to Richmond. Yeah, they almost took Richmond there. And at, around that point, the, the Confederacy, like the, the leadership of the Confederacy, came up with a contingency plan. They were like, okay, if this happens, we're going to move to Montgomery, Alabama, and we've got the orders in place, we've got the plan in place, All we, like, we just need to say go, and they'll get us out of here. So like... If just because Burnside seized the capital w- did not mean the war was going to be over. It still would have been a major win, though. It would have been a major political win, but it would have done very little realistically. Mm-hmm. Because, again, the, the leadership would have been out and Lee would have still been operating. Because most of the best generals, even the mediocre generals in the North, understood that once you got Lee, you took the South. Because they may have had some very good commanders, but Lee was by far the best. And... And he was in command. And so as long as he was in the field and confident and able to, to respond, the North just, it wasn't going, it wasn't going to feel confident about any plan it had. But Lincoln went along with this. He wanted Burnside to have that confidence. He was like, okay, this is his first plan. I don't want to shoot it down. So he went ahead and let Burnside go forward with his plan to take Richmond, hoping that he'd take out Lee in the process. And that was really the biggest thing. I mean, we have to remember Lee at his biggest here you said 90,000. 90,000. So even as big as he's outnumbered, he didn't have his biggest at the very beginning. No. No, at, at the very beginning of this, actually, he had divided his forces uh, to, to basically just rest. He had had the North on the defensive for so long, and they were feeling um, timid enough that Lee was able to use this time while the North was like, where's he going to hit next? To just kind of settle down and replenish, Take a nap. Yeah, replenish some supplies, guard the back door, which is where Jackson was sent. He was sent all the way to the Shenandoah Valley. Whereas uh, Longstreet was much closer by at uh, Culpeper Court, Culpeper Courthouse. Um, I wanted to say, we've been talking about so many ferries. I was like, Culpeper, mm-hmm. no, it's not a ferry. So he's kind of spread out. His major forces, again, Longstreet and Jackson, his big, his big dogs at this point. And initially, Burnside's plan works. Like he, he, he manages to take Lee by surprise. Now, again, under his command, he's got Sumner, who at best can be described as unimaginative and unimpressive. That's the best you can describe Sumner. Wait, don't we have a fort named after him? We do. Um, there is Hooker, who we, I, I, I am with most historians in being baffled as to why Hooker got this post. It's not that Hooker wasn't qualified. Like he was a, a decent commander. It was that he and Burnside hated one another, as we mentioned before. Like they, they were all often at odds. And so it's just very strange that he would be appointed to this position. Burnside took this job to make sure Hooker didn't get it. Right. That is not a good start to this working relationship. And then he's like, hey, man, how about you command one of my wings? Yeah. And then the other one is under Franklin, who anybody who studied Antietam will know a thing or two about Franklin. Um, And we'll go over Antietam at some point, so I don't want to go into it too much here. And, And the army has been reorganized back into wings. Now, the, the Union Army went through several different phases where it was corps, wings, divisions, and all of this is basically like bigger or smaller units of division um, in order for flexibility. As we've gone over, obviously, the, the smaller you can break your units down and still maintain cohesion is the best 
But I think Burnside was like, you know what? I just want to talk to three people. So these three guys, I know where their tents are. Um, they're in charge. Cool. He really was a believer in simple is better. <laughs> and it, anything taken to an excess can be a sin. Yep. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good way of putting it. Yeah. Uh, so again, this plan to move on Richmond actually takes Lee's by a surprise because he manages to maneuver around Longstreet at Culpeper Courthouse and move down toward Fredericksburg. Now his plan when he reaches Fredericksburg was to cross the bridges there and move straight toward Richmond. Now, had his plan gone off without a hitch, I, we might be singing a different tune about Burnside because Lee was caught completely out of position. He was expecting more behavior like McClellan had, which was mostly, you know, stand there and ho and hum and hmm, hmm, let me drill my troops some more. I'm going to drill them some more, so much so that they became known as McClellan's bodyguard. Um, yeah, your army should not be known as your bodyguard. That's not the That's, not that's the what the, the Varian strategy from Roman times, <laughs> <laughs> just uh, hang out and... Go that way. Except the variant strategy actually worked, and that one did not. It did not. It did not. But yeah, so so Lee fails to act at this point, um, or, or, or didn't have the intel to act, and was managed to be caught by surprise, which did not happen much during the war. And it would actually be, I think, another year or two before Lee was actually caught by surprise by somebody's maneuver like this. But he, the, 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 there was this, a hiccup. Again, the plan was good. The War Department had approved the plan. Lincoln had approved the plan. The people were all like, woo, the plan. <laughs> um, but the problem was the bridges in Fredericksburg were blown out. <gasps> oh, no. So, so uh, Burnside's like, I have a brilliant idea. I'll commission the War Department to send us some pontoon bridges. We'll cross the army as though there were bridges, and it'll be all good. And at this point, Sumner is like, hey, boss, I, there's a ford to the north. I can take my... Uh, wing and we can cross there establish a bridgehead and so in the, and, and take the heights beyond the city these Mary's heights and and so that when the pontoons arrive we've got a good bridgehead established we don't have a cannon bearing down on us and the whole army can cross without incident and Burnside was like no no he, he I don't, I've had some bad things with crossings before we just need to cross together well and this is another place where I'm going to give a little bit of defense to Burnside even though he was wrong here he should have done that yes but he thought about it. This is at what... Because Lee was not there at the time. Like, nobody was there. The heights were barren. Fredericksburg was like, oh, gosh, Union. Um, so... This like, is what, Skinker's Ferry? That's later. Skink? Oh, okay. I'm that's sorry. Later. Then I am not going to defend him right here. He was just <laughs> wrong. I'm getting my things mixed up. So this is before that. Yeah, this is before the battle actually clicks off. Like, this this is still maneuver. So he, he does not let Sumner go and go to the other side. Uh, and eventually, heavy rains... Uh, kind of prevent that option and they start to delay the pontoon boats and it's it's a couple to several weeks before the boats even get there and this is more than enough time for lee to go whoa time to prep <laughs> and so he pulls obviously his two his, his two commanders and he's like okay you need to come back long street's the closer one because he's only at culpepper courthouse so he comes down to fredericksburg and he sets up on the heights beyond and on on mary's on, on the ridge line there and he's ready he's like okay I'm here, I've showed myself, and I've only got 40,000 dudes. I'm staring at an army of 120,000. I got to be ready to fight and scoot. They could have taken it. They could have taken it right there and ended this war, basically. And they didn't. And they didn't. They, like, again, you know, uh, and, and several times Burnside was like, well, maybe we'll cross it a Ford. Well, maybe we'll cross somewhere else. And he'd always go back on it. He'd always go back on the idea of, of having either multiple crossings or 
having an early crossing to establish a, be a bridgehead on the other side to, de to defend and like control the area. Because I mean, what if he like, even if he had split his army in half at this point and sent half across, that still would have been enough to deal with Longstreet. That's, that's as long half as again as big as the army that was there. But he had to be there first. And he wasn't there first because he waited. He hesitated, right? And so Longstreet arrives. He's, he's ready. And he, and he thinks that he's, gonna, he's in for a fight, but Burnside fails to act. Um, and then Jackson arrives. And so when Jackson arrives, that, that starts bolstering the army up to about 90,000. And at this point, Lee spreads his forces out. I, I, we don't have the, I don't have the exact figure recorded here because of course the one number I want, I didn't pull out of my book, but I think it was something like 18 miles was the, was the length of this front. That is a really big, fr at any era of war, that is a really long front to have to watch. And they don't have radios, thumbs. <laughs> So yeah, he's, he's got this massive front expecting a flanking maneuver because he's like, oh, Burnside has got this massive force. There's no way he's just going to push it across at Fredericksburg. And he kind of quickly realizes that he doesn't need this massive front because Burnside is just sitting there on the other side of the river. All clumped up. Waiting for his pontoons to arrive. So up until this point, Burnside has had a rather unimpressive uh, showing. And, I, and you might be like, well, Malark really hasn't picked that many fights with this dead guy. Well, I'm on it. Don't worry about it because Burnside haven't gotten started yet. So they decide on two main points of crossing. One of them right at Fredericksburg, like right in front of the main forces that are dug in behind Fredericksburg. And the other one is a little bit further down at Skinkers. That's one, Skinkers. Skinkers Ferry. Which we have the Montana accent. So I'm going to get this out right now. It is spelled S-K-I-N-K-E-R. Skinkers. Skinkers. I, 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 keep, I keep mishearing it as something completely different, and that's not what we mean. Um, and, and, uh, and at this point, the, there's sniper fire mm -hmm. in, the, in the main part of Fredericksburg. Now, Fredericksburg has been evacuated. Lee has the good sense to go to the people of Fredericksburg and say, hey, there's a fight fixing to break out, so if you want to, mm, you know, scoot to the, scoot away, we don't want to shoot you. And that was a good thing because, you know, I... I I remember looking up the figure and it was a grotesque number of shells fell on Fredericksburg. Like they shelled the bejesus out of Fredericksburg. And it was a good thing that Lee told people to get out of there because there would have been catastrophic loss of civilian life. This is actually the first time in the Civil War that we had fighting right in the streets. Yeah. Most other times it had taken out in pastures and fields. Like people were close enough to maybe come and watch and have a picnic if they were dumb. Which is such a weird thing, but it was a thing for... It stopped after Manassas. <laughs> for thousands of years though, that was a standard. Of just, let's go watch. They didn't have flak. They didn't have flak launchers or grape shot thumbs. Like, those are things that uh, changed. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, Lee evacuates the place, and the, the pontoon bridge builders in Fredericksburg immediately come under sniper fire. Because uh, Lee had commanded a few uh, brigades, or not brigades, but um, uh, units to remain in Fredericksburg kind of undercover to harass the bridge builders. And it works. Because... I mean, it's hard to build a bridge when you're being shot. Well, um, and remember, this is the Civil War. This is the first battle, not the first battle, the first war where guns were actually getting pretty accurate. And yeah, Antietam had already happened. And so at Antietam, you saw a really widespread usage of rifling, mm -hmm. right? And so that's one of the big, like when you see it, like it, before that, it was, it was around. It was relatively uncommon because it was an expensive process to go through. And so like really only ornate or, or fancy weapons would have it. But this was the first time it was being mass produced. Yeah. I mean, snipers are always dangerous because 
someone's trying to shoot you. But when they can accurately Yeah, this is, you you know, uh, (laughs) we've reached past the point where after, you know, like 25 yards, it might actually still hit now. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's a big deal. And so you got these snipers there. And again, we're talking about Southerners. I don't know if any of you have spent time in the South, but if you have, if you, they haven't taken you shooting yet, they will. And that, that's not new. If uh, they haven't taken you shooting yet, they just don't like you that much. That's, like, that's a darn good point. <laughs> Man, don't tell them that thumbs. You're going to hurt somebody's feelings. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so you've got these snipers bearing down, making it really hard to cross at Fredericksburg. And so the, the first group trying to get across at Fredericksburg is Sumner. And he's and Hooker is being held back in reserve, even though he's the more experienced of these three commanders, by the way. Sumner's the one who's initially do, doing the press across, and Franklin has been directed down to Skinker's neck. I'm just going to have to... Just, Skinker's. Skinker's. Down kind of the, to the south of town. Um, now, again, this, this has been very unimaginative, and, and the orders that are issued at this point are extremely vague. Now, again, we have talked about on this show, when you're on the battlefield, like actively on the battlefield, things are happening, things are moving. You want to keep it simple, right? You want to have very simple, short commands. The planning stage with an army of 120,000 needs to be more than, hey, TF, thumbs, go Go right. (laughs) (laughs) Needs to be a little bit more involved in that. You need to have linking actions. You need to be talking about who's doing what, what's going to lead to what next action. You're supporting me here. This is what's going to happen after that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you don't get here, do this. The plan here was, hey, Franklin, go cross in the south and then attack them. Hey, Sumner, across here in Fredericksburg. And when you do that, Hooker, you will follow them. You guys will attack them. not enough Burnside. That's not enough Burnside. It's really not. So, but that's kind of, I mean, they tried to do it the best way they could. And so it took all day. The construction in Fredericksburg took all day because it was being done under like enemy fire. So it was, it was not very quick going. And by the time it was done, it was nightfall and they stopped there. Franklin's crossing, however, a little bit further down was unopposed for the most part. Like I, I there may have yeah, been a everyone's few too busy shooting the pontoon boats in like. the main city. Yeah. And so he gets across and, but again, there's no further action. Now, part of what was cited for the excuse here was they were not given specific orders, you know, like they were like, okay, we crossed, but we really didn't know what we were supposed to do afterwards. Cause Burnside didn't say if you cross without incident, make sure to move up and, and do something. So at this point, you know, uh, Lee is able to see this and, and of course they cross and they, they do, that's it. That's what they do for the day. And so Lee pulls his people out of, out of Fredericksburg, um, and repositions Jackson to be directly in front of Franklin over on the Confederate right. And then of course, Longstreet just digs in and they've cleared all cover. The artillery have prime firing everything in this place beneath Mary's Heights outside of Fredericksburg. So this area outside of Fredericksburg leading up to Mary's Heights, by the way, it's not just a cliff, right? It's like a, basically a, a mile long, slow incline that leads up to a ridge. And then that ridge is like a a road with a wall on it. And then on the other side, it is a more sharp incline that leads up to like hills and another Heights, Mary's Heights. And so Longstreet has infantry divisions down along that, that like wall, that midway up wall. And then artillery just hanging out, have been there for a while on yeah. top of Mary's Heights. You know how we were talking about putting archers on the high ground or do that? This is, you cannot ask for a better place. They've had time to, to like range this. their guns, like everything, everything. This is like, and it's, this is, I think, Anderson. 
I think Anderson was in command of the artillery this time around, and he was not a man that messed about. So you have this really good setup, and this is what the Federals were marching into on, the, on, the, on December the 13th. Uh, yeah. They were marching up. That's exhausting. Into withering fire. Just constant withering fire. So the, the, early, the early pressure from Franklin uh, it, it happens in the morning. So here comes Franklin uh, on the Confederate right, and he comes up, and there's some pretty fierce fighting in the morning, to be honest, but it repulses his efforts, and without further orders from Burnside, which never come, right? He's been told to advance. He advances. I'm rolling my eyes. You can't see it, but I'm... It was a very loud eye roll. (laughs) Um, But they they advance, they're repulsed, no further orders comes, and so he just sits on his ducket right there. No further action comes from Franklin that day. Then the forces move out from Fredericksburg, and they are moving up into massed fire from both cannon and rifles. Again, we're dealing with rifles that have rifling in a lot of cases and cannons that are very accurate at this point. Not only that, we are, they are using a lot of different things like grape shot and flak, which flak is basically an early grenade, like a flying grenade sort of idea. Um, with, it is fired from a cannon. It is not pleasant. You do not want it hitting you. And grape shot's basically a shotgun cannon. It's a shotgun. Like, yeah, it's... your cannon's a shotgun at that point. And so they're, they're marching up. Not a single Union soldier made it to that ridge. Ugh. Not a single one made it up to just like the road where the soldiers were. Because what the soldiers were doing, by the way, it, we didn't just have like a one deep line along this road of people shooting and then taking the time to reload their weapons. Oh, yeah, slow, pour the powder in, bup, 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 and then aiming again. No, you had a, a, a line that was about four or five deep. And the dude in front was shooting. And everybody behind him was reloading. And so every time he reached back, he was getting a full musket put in his hand, which he would bring forward, boom, reach back, get a full musket, boom. And so this is basically a human machine gun that's happening here, that firing downrange. And it was brutal. It was absolutely brutal. Division after division after division was repulsed off of that hillside and fell back to Fredericksburg. And the fighting was so intense that a few divisions were actually left out on the field of battle like pinned down uh, when night fell and had to use the bodies of their comrades as shields against Confederate snipers. Which is about the most horrifying thing that you can survive through yeah. in this. Yeah. And, and so like the, uh, a state of kind of stalemate persists for a bit. And then Burnside, you know, says, can we collect our dead and our wounded? Lee says, sure. They do so. And they withdraw from Fredericksburg. Uh, spoiler alert. Burnside is sacked. Oh, yeah. He does not keep his job here. And he shouldn't keep his job here. He shouldn't keep his job. So what is the one thing he does well, again, I want to give credit where credit is due. The one thing he does well is he actually established a functioning bridgehead. Mm -hmm. He did do that because when he was withdrawing from Fredericksburg, he was able to do so in good order because the bridgehead was there, had been established and maintained. So at the very least, I cannot fault him for that. But he hesitated. And then hesitated. And then for some reason hesitated some more. And then decided to march directly into prepared positions. Who does that? Uh, pretty much just the Greek phalanxes. And that and, and Burnside. Yeah. And that's just, uh, his, his technique was 2,000 years out of date at this point. 2,500 years. It's like, like we read old books in order to gain inspiration for our wargaming, right? But if we fought exactly like they do in our books, we would lose because those ideas are outdated. It's a good place to give you inspiration, to give you ways to think about how it can be applied to now. But like if we honestly tried to organize ourselves after the exact Roman legion, it just wouldn't work, oh, right? It would now. die. Wouldn't work. 
would not work. And so, yeah, that's Fredericksburg. One cool thing that I did not know happened in the Civil War that I read about here that I just could not find where to put it into the battle was the idea that there were war balloons. Yes. Yeah, there were war balloons. Uh, because, you know, we're not, we're still, what, 40 years from flight at that point? Yeah. Uh, if you're talking like propellered flight. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but as we've talked about a lot in the Civil War is where the technology had exceeded where the war like what battle strategies were at the time, but we hadn't quite got to the modern stage yet. It's a really weird in-between zone. And part of that was having flight. Mm -hmm. And it's not like, you know, we're putting people up in balloons and doing combat because that is really ridiculously easy to think of. Like a dude with a slingshot's going to stop that. Recon. We're talking but, recon. But recon, this is the first war that you actually have people in the air being like, oh, hey, that's a thing. I see movement over there like, oh from boy. my hot air balloon. Uh, and I, as I said, I couldn't figure out the best place to put this in, but just it blew my mind. It yeah. never occurred to me that we had war balloons before in, this. In a time where people use hot air balloons exclusively for recreation, it is hard to imagine a time when they were used almost exclusively for military reconnaissance. Yeah, that's all. That, it, that's it. It. <laughs> it would be like a, a, a I don't know, a, a, a WMD suddenly becoming a child's toy in the future. Like we look forward to it. That like, goes dark. Yeah, it did. It's, it's a little late. I'm a little tired. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. It's like 1130. <laughs> so again, what, what Burnside did wrong here, in, in my opinion, the big things he did wrong is, again, he failed to act with any sort of initiative. He failed to be inventive at all. He, wanted, he had a plan, and he was like, I'm sticking to this plan. Come hell or high water, I'm sticking to this plan. And as we know, no plan survives. First encounter with the enemy. He, he, he may have moved in stages, but he didn't, he moved too predictably. Um, and, and yeah, he, he like eventually it, it cost a lot more lives than it should have. And it made the war last a lot longer than it probably could have. So, I mean, again, that's, that's historical fiction. We have no idea what would have occurred if the bridges would have been intact in Fredericksburg and he would have crossed unopposed. Uh, we can, we can guesstimate, but I don't have my shiny crystal ball and my tarot cards are unreliable as we've discussed. So today... We've talked about moving with a purpose, and this under, this comes with this comes the understanding of the three sorts of country and the three zones of combat. When you're moving with a purpose, you need to know how to deal with CAV, and you also need to know how to move in stages to most effectively maneuver the army. When you're moving through a river, as we had discussed, uh, the, there's some rules when you're trying to cross and you're prevented from crossing directly, and there are also rules for trying to defend if you are just really comfortable with your part of the river. And speaking of rivers, uh, when we were talking about Fredericksburg, that's all about the river and, and oh, how you man. cross that darn river. You got anything else, Dad? I, I think that's pretty much it. I'm going to go home and dream about war balloons. Yeah, that could be fun. I might try to do that tonight. <laughs> but uh, if you guys have been listening and you're like, man, I just have not had nearly enough art of war gaming. Uh, I am trying to post constant uh, memeage, which is uh, we've got player profiles. We've got little quotes. We've got factoids from the, the time of the battle we're talking about. You can find those on Instagram, Art of War Gaming Podcast, or uh, on, on Facebook, The Art of War Gaming. Uh, if you want to email us, uh, you want to email us information for these player profiles. Uh, you like what we're doing. You don't like what we're doing. You just want to have a conversation. Uh, you can email us, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. Um, and then we've also got some other shows in, in case you're chomping at the bit to have other material as well. Oh, yeah. You can check out uh, me and my buddy Tyler talking about whatever nerdy stuff comes to our mind. On over on General Nerdery, or you can listen to Tyler and Danny talk about horror movies over on Fried Squirms. 
uh, real quick, just I really am loving the player profiles. I just I just really want to say that because uh, this is the first episode I think we've recorded since we've actually started getting them in. That's true. Yeah. Uh, and I really enjoy seeing them, not just the people that I know, but the people I don't know is actually way more exciting to me. And I want everyone to turn these in. I would love it too. Like if you're sitting there thinking to yourself, man, I have just not achieved enough to have one of these player profiles. Shut up and send one in. Anyways. None of us. We're all nerds. <laughs> we're nerds. Like just, just give us your picture and let us talk about how cool you are. Please. Oh, I'm not nearly well known enough to, I get. People tell me that about everything in Bellagarth. Oh, I'm not well-known enough to do that. You know how you get well-known enough to do the thing? Putting your picture online, silly. You do the thing. <laughs> so yeah, send us, send us your stuff. We, we would love to steal your identity. I mean, promote you on our, on our <laughs> Shameless self-aggrandizement <laughs> that we are using for content. Exactly. And if you're enjoying our content, please repost, like, subscribe, uh, give us a, a rating uh, wherever you listen, and uh, give us a review. Mm-hmm. You can also. Did we already do the website here? Did they, God, uh, I, no? That's the okay. reason I've got a script to plug. We're gonna start putting. And I completely thing. distracted you from it. I just went off. But if you want to check out more things beyond just our social media, you can always check out our website at TauWarGaming.com. That is T-A-O WarGaming.com. Yes. Or you can find us and all of the other shows that we already mentioned at Earverm.com. That is E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. But for this week, this has been Yaga Malark. And I'm Thumbs. Signing off.